0: On this August 4th How is it August 4th already? What? We're on the back nine of the summer everybody Uh, On this August 4th Wednesday morning We wish you a good morning Jesperson here with Hoyles and Brooks In just a moment uh, Professor Timothy Caulfield Want to remind you that Real Talk Each and every morning Is presented by our presenting sponsor The team at Bitcoin Well It's been a huge week for them Ran into my pal Benny, as a matter of fact, walking down the street yesterday after a lunch date. There he was. I saw him from across the road. He's kind of the guy I check in with at Bitcoin. Well, the guy that answers my dumb questions. He assures me that they're not dumb questions, but this is the benefit of having a human to bounce ideas off. Whenever I have questions about crypto, he's the one I go to. They've been celebrating going public. We told you that on the TSX Venture Exchange last Friday. You could could see it in his eyes. Pretty exciting time for the team at Bitcoin. Well, you'll find him under the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com.
1: Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan
2: Jesperson.
0: We've got a busy show in store today. I'm looking forward to it coming up. It it almost seems buried in the lineup. Uh, The Prime Minister's special representative for the Prairies, uh, the Honorable Minister Jim Carr, uh, an MP out of Winnipeg South Centre, will join us coming up in about an hour and a half. we will look forward to that. We'll we'll basically put him right on the spot and say, when's the PM calling the election? When is that coming up? And uh, as has been the case before, I expect that Minister Carr will probably be pretty candid and and who knows? Maybe he'll give us a scoop. Maybe he'll give us a day in particular. I've, I've got one friend that's just convinced that the election is going to be called on August 8th. Just convinced about that. So we'll see if that happens. You remember last time Minister Jim Carr was on the show? We said to him, uh, we were sort of going rat a tat tat style with some questions from real talkers, ones that were being submitted using our hashtag #RealTalkRJ, which is a great way to get in touch with us and keep in touch with us, you know, during the show while we're doing this live. And then later on, if you happen to be downloading the podcast, of course, you can also pop into our live chat, which uh, you know is is a great uh, uh, community of people that join us every morning live on YouTube. You can subscribe to the Real Talk Ryan Jesperson YouTube channel. So we're reading these questions. For Jim Carr, last time he's on the show a number of months ago, and one of them was a good one. Whatever happened to electoral reform? Whatever happened to the electoral reform that the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau promised? And Minister Carr takes a second, and he goes, "We let you down on that." And I went, "Huh?" And he was like, "Yeah, we didn't uh, we didn't keep our promise there." And uh, we made a promise and we didn't keep it. And I'm sitting there going, oh, wow. Like, when does a politician ever say that? Like, ever. So I don't know. He, he set the bar uh, to a certain degree. If you, if you didn't see that interview, I do, I do not encourage you to break away from this episode of Real Talk but it's worth going back and listening. We'll ask him what progress he believes that he's made in his role and, and, and what, how he perceives his mandate, a special representative to the prairies. I wonder if there's a little bit of snickering that happens in cabinet, in federal cabinet, you know, where you've got sort of these liberal cabinet ministers that are, that are in safe zones in, in areas where the, that red banner flies proudly and, and, and where it's, you know, it's easy to be an elected representative for the liberals and then maybe they go around the table and they come to old jim and they go how are things on the prairies and he kind of and then everyone kind of nervously chuckles right yeah. how, how, how is support for the liberal brand in in alberta and saskatchewan and he probably goes well you know he's probably somewhat of an optimist and he probably goes well you know well uh. the liberals will endeavor to do better in the federal election on the prairies because the conservatives absolutely dominated you remember the conservatives seated you might say they conceded four seats in the 2015 election right they had had two members of parliament in edmonton one of them wound up being a minister who's now running of course to be the mayor of edmonton amirjeet sohi and then you had two down in calgary And uh, both of them ran into some some challenges with regards to their political career and optics and public support and and the like. And uh, when it all came down to it, Albertans rejigged the structure of where their MPs were representing them in parliament in the 2019 election. The liberals lost all four of those seats. So it'll be interesting to see his perspective on the work that's being done. Their priorities, of course, we'll ask them about things like, uh, you know, drought and agriculture i want to ask them about this note yesterday that was released i mean it didn't come from jim carr but it came from a couple of his colleagues uh the justice minister david lametti and the public safety minister bill blair of course the former chief of police for the city of toronto uh now the federal minister of public safety this was in response to alberta's justice minister casey Madu. remember this coming up with a couple of uh, ideas on on how we could address rising crime rates also racism and 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 hate crimes and, and and sexual assaults and the like and and alberta's alberta justice's official position per the minister was was number one kind of from the the stephen harper school of thought on mandatory minimums they wanted to see mandatory minimums when it came to sentencing that's something we could do a whole week of shows on you'll have people that are strong advocates for mandatory minimums and typically you have you know the the justice advocates that'll say there are unintended consequences. For example, some uh, ethnic groups, um, some some demographics are disproportionately impacted or affected by mandatory minimums, and they're not always effective. The federal government addressed that yesterday, but but more prominently, they addressed Alberta's Justice Minister Casey Madhu's suggestion that perhaps, you know, we should decriminalize or we should make more accessible pepper spray Uh, For for people, in particular women of color, in particular, uh, per the justice minister's initial release, uh, hijabi women that have been experiencing violence and targeted attacks. The Alberta government's position on that was it was the more pepper spray that's out there, the safer it'll be for everybody. And yesterday, uh, late yesterday afternoon, Federal Justice Minister Lametti and Federal Public Safety Minister Blair with an open letter quote when looking at this request we have to be mindful that all weapons that are prohibited have been prohibited for a reason i'm going to try to read i'm going to i'm going to break this back to jespo now i'm I'm not i'm not i'm going to read this is in a tone of voice imagine an adult explaining this to like a five-year-old this is and i'm trying to just do it in a professional broadcaster's voice but if i were to slip with my tone and still stick to the script right We have to be mindful that all weapons that are prohibited have been prohibited for a reason, as they are extremely dangerous when they fall into the wrong hands. When confronted with a problem, the solution cannot simply be to increase accessibility to prohibited weapons. This can actually lead to further violence. Duh. That's my edit. Rather, we need to address complex issues like mental health and addictions, and uh, just one through a continuum, such as prevention, and when appropriate, enforcement. So that's it. Federal government says, "Uh, uh-uh, uh," on more pepper spray on Alberta streets and in Alberta communities to solve issues of crime. A good friend of this show, by the name of Barry, hit me up on Twitter yesterday and said, uh, "Okay, Jesmo, you know, I guess that uh, you know." Whoever needs to, next time they go into Canadian Tire, can just pick up a can of bear spray and, you know, what's the big difference? Throw the bear spray in your person. There you go. He says to me, Don't you carry bear spray, Jesperson, when you hike in the woods? And I typed this big, long thread back to him. And then I realized, you know what? This is coming across as cynical and prickish, quite frankly. And I, and I know Barry, I've never met him, but I feel like I know him on social media. I know him to be a smart guy. I know him to be a sincere guy. And so I merely wrote back to him, I like you, Barry, so I'm going to let this one slide. Because I didn't really want to get into it. I really don't think that there are similarities. I don't really think that you should be drawing comparisons, how people equip themselves to head out into the backcountry, should they encounter a 900-pound adolescent male grizzly bear. Or, or a sow with two cubs on a blind corner of a trail versus a woman going to the mall and getting jumped in the parking lot. I, I'm not sure that you should equip yourself or mentally prepare yourself in the same way. I would also remind Barry that if you do carry around cans of bear spray in your purse, let alone deploy them, the police will certainly have something to say about that. Anybody that's actually bought canisters of bear spray knows that you sign off on it. There's a registry, not quite like going to pick up a shotgun, but you're on the record. And it's something that the government takes seriously. You can't just drive around with a can of bear spray under your seat. You can't drive around with a can of bear spray in your glove box if you get pulled over and expect to be perfectly fine. That would not be the case. So it's a no go on pepper spray. We're going to get to some emails a little bit later on in the show. It's It's been remarkable to see uh, dozens of people. I know they would probably argue hundreds of people on a daily basis, day after day after day after day, show up in protest outside the McDougall Center in downtown Calgary and the Alberta legislature grounds here in Edmonton. They're, they're calling them the protect our province demonstrations and day after day, people, including physicians and And health experts have been speaking out against the steps that the Alberta government has taken away from COVID-19 restrictions. We wanted to let you know, we've received your emails. Uh, Many of them are written directly to us. And many of them are are you CCing us. You're copying us at talk at ryanjesperson.com to your emails, to the education minister, to the health minister, to the premier, to the mayor of Calgary. I'm, I'm reading through them right now. We're going to one to Dina Hinshaw in particular that that was written with a flamethrower. Wanted to let you know that tomorrow, about 45 minutes into our show, we're going to be talking to two doctors that I know will not see eye to eye on this. Both of them reputable physicians. One of them has been very prominent in his criticism of this government and his organizing of the Protect Our Province demonstrations. Dr. Joe Vipond. Another, through the course of this pandemic, has been one of the, in my mind, stars of public information, helping people understand infectious disease and how a pandemic uh, comes about and spreads and how vaccines can combat uh, some of that spread. Dr. Lenora Saxinger, who was uh, a very good friend of this show early in its inception. She was with us in late November when we first launched and has been on several times. I know the two doctors are not going to see eye to eye on this one. Uh, Dr. Vipond has been extremely outspoken uh, in his feelings about this government and and how they're handling uh, this, uh, the, the current, what some are calling the fourth wave. I'm not sure if that's quite accurate yet. And I want to choose my words carefully. Dr. Saxinger has come across, in, in my mind, as see if i describe her as measured then it makes me sound like i'm calling dr vipon something other than that let's just say that she has been less sensational in the presentation of her opinions over the past while and has been struck me as more open to considering some of the potentially valid theories and thoughts behind dr hinshaw and the provincial government's decisions Tomorrow, we'll open up the floor and we'll let the two of them go back and forth. If you have questions you'd like us to ask them, the best thing to do is to submit them ahead of time to talk at RyanJesperson.com. Oh, and by the way, Andre DeGrasse, Canada, gold this morning in the men's 200 meters. Congratulations to Andre. I know I felt kind of, I felt kind of strange watching the men's 100 meters the other day. Number one, it was, it was super cool to see Italy win. Mm. You never think of Italy when it comes to the 100 meter dash, you think of Jamaica, you think of Canada, the United States, I think of Great Britain. Um, there have been other countries that have done well, but those to me have always been the ones that have had contenders in the mix. Italy, what? And the guy was built like a linebacker, comes in, wins the 100 meter dash to grass, wins bronze. And I think everyone was kind of like, when you Usain Bolt left wasn't degrasse supposed to take the crown mm. was that famous photo of them looking at each other and laughing we can't show anybody olympic highlights or photos or anything like that they would shut us down so fast so we have to use our imaginations and our memories but andre degrasse this morning making all of us proud unbelievable way to go professor tim caulfield coming up in just a second Sam, can you call up that Instagram post from Grand Dog Essentials for me? Check this out. I saw this yesterday. You know, quality raw food. It's what we feed our dogs, Moses and Monroe. Eat grand dog quality raw food twice a day. I follow them on Instagram. I encourage you to do so. It's 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 like a learning experience almost every single day. They posted this yesterday. It was a testimonial, which is great. Uh it, it just it, it goes on to show how uh I mean, people like customers of theirs. Are coming into the mix and, and and asking specific questions and it's just this is a company it makes it so obvious and so clear that they care very deeply about each one of their customers right so this is christine who says thank you so much our puppy's had allergies since the day he was born in the last couple of months have been terrifying he was losing an insane amount of fur his coat was coarse and dull his skin dry and flaky we were so worried about his health we tried every kibble possible but nothing worked and after one week of your food his skin is hydrated and no longer flaky his coat is so smooth and shiny thank you so much your food saved my dog's life that from christine i think christine's words speak for themselves You can learn more about the solutions the team of nutritionists at Grand Dog Essentials can find for your pup by visiting them at granddog.ca. Don't forget the promo code REALTALK gets you 10% off your first-time order delivered to your door in Calgary, Edmonton, or Central Alberta. Let's get to this guy. If if you pay attention to health policy, if you're interested in law, uh, for that matter, if you participate in social media anywhere in Western Canada, you've likely seen him all over the place. Tim Caulfield is a Canada research chair in health law and policy. He's a best-selling author. He's a Netflix show host. He's been a great friend of this show ever since we launched. And it's great, my friend, to welcome you back. Thanks for being here on Real Talk this morning
3: thanks for having me on and, and and go to grass, man. i'm still I'm still a little misty. <laughs> still a little misty. That was awesome.
0: I always find what watching the two hundred meters, it it's tough to get a read because they start on the corner, right? and And so the people on on the outside lanes, like eight and nine, appear to have such a head start. And then, the, you know, on the inside lanes, one, two, three, you, you recognize, you realize that they're going to see their they're going to see that benefit pay off as they come around those first hundred meters. And DeGrasse kind of right there in the middle. It was tough to get a read where it was. He, he looked to be in third place, third or fourth place, even as they rounded that bend. And then, whammo, he was just gone.
3: Well, I don't know if you knew this about me, Ryan. I'm a track nerd. I'm no. like all in on athletics. My, I met my wife on a track team. You know, I, I go to Diamond Leagues. I've, I've been to Berlin. I've been to, uh, I didn't think he was, I didn't think he'd medal. <laughs> I've, I've followed every single race he's done this year. I've just dissected it. The guy is amazing. He's amazing. He, I don't know any other athlete that brings it. Like DeGrasse. Hey, I know you didn't have me on to talk track, but let's let's just talk track. <laughs> this,
0: this is real talk, and I honestly here's here's how I think it. I always think that we should run a talk show the same way that we would run our lives. And if I ran into you on the sidewalk this morning, the very first thing that you and I would both probably say was DeGrasse. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's just real life, my man. So I, I
3: used to run the 200 was my event, right? And. Uh, <laughs> You know, <laughs> my event. Um, but I, I honestly to God, I, I, uh, I really did get a little misty. I, I uh, more than a little misty. But I was alone in the house watching it, so I, I could let it go. I could let it go. How
0: how far were you? Like, I mean, I, if it was your event, uh, how far how far were you off Andre DeGrasse's gold medal winning time this morning of nineteen six two?
3: I'm embarrassed to say. <laughs> Okay, when I when I was in high school, and I have friends out there who're gonna test this. Yeah. I was I was good. I was a good runner. I was a good runner, but I, Ron, Ryan, I was one of those guys that I didn't get any faster. <laughs> you know, I was like grade eleven. I think I think my PB might have been in grade eleven. So I ran in the twenty two seconds in that's grade amazing. eleven. That's amazing. People out there in no tracks. That's the real deal. Didn't get any faster, but I, I I did it enough that I met my beautiful. I was fast enough. To meet my beautiful wife, hey. who was the real deal, by the way, she was the real deal. As a junior, she was top ten in the world. She was the real deal. She's one. The, she's still the best athlete I know. We always joke about in the house. I have a house full of of uh, and she's the best athlete I know. Wow.
0: Yeah, that's no. Tw- I know a lot of
3: athletes. <laughs> Twenty two seconds
0: is no joke. I was always when I when I ran track in in junior high and then a little bit into high school. I always had the events that. That kind of made me puke a little bit. Uh, my wheelhouse was the eight hundred meters, the fifteen hundred and the three thousand, which are the, the, the fifteen hundred I love mistake, it. Mistake. it it it's it's a sen- it's essentially it's not technically, but it's essentially like a mile race, right? but you realize very quickly that these are like sprinters that have the ability to run four times around the, tr- I mean, like the very good 1500 meter competitors. And for that matter, the 3000 there, there's no sort of like finding your pace and jogging. And I learned very quickly uh, that this was just not for me. This was not for me. So I've got a great deal of respect for all of these, but, but I mean, it's just amazing to see DeGrasse do well. I was, I was, we were, I was talking earlier in the show about in the, in the men's hundred meters, kind of neat to see Italy win gold there because it's just for me I mean obviously the olympics you, you love to see your country do well and and you love to see the canadian flag raised and hear the anthem and all that kind of stuff but at the same time these are stories of individual athletes that have worked their whole lives and and all of a sudden you think to win an olympic gold medal in in the men's 100 meter i mean the rest of your life that's that's it to win a, to win an olympic medal in anything what an accomplishment
3: Oh, yeah. We have a thing in our, our house. If you could be the best in the world at one Olympic event, like win the gold medal in one event, what would it be? 100 meter dash. That's the one, right? That's yeah. the one. And uh, uh, yeah, that was, that was amazing. And so crazy competitive, that, that event. Yeah. Uh, it was great. Hey, I think Andre's bronze was incredible. Yeah. Incredible. I wasn't sure he was going to make the final. Well, he ran. He ran. Uh, he ran a, he ran a personal best, it.
0: right? He ran a personal best and won the bronze medal. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. So I think you know. Incredible. You know what? I would love. I would love my my, uh, my uncle is. Uh, he married my dad's sister, Jungle Jim Hunter of the Crazy Canucks. He won a bronze medal uh, in. in uh, he, he was a skier, obviously. He won a bronze medal in '72 in Sapporo. And I've always thought if I could win an Olympic medal, the men's hundred meter would be one. But I also think men's downhill because yeah. you you got to be a little squirrely to win that i mean these guys i remember asking my uncle jim we'd sit down and and i mean it was amazing right you go down to his basement and he's just got this this entire wall of just all of his skis right he's got his medals he actually ended up having olympic and world cup medals stolen it was a real tragedy but but he had all these medals and race bibs and everything and i remember asking him about kitzbühel in particular on the world cup circuit i was like what is it like to stand in the starting gate in kitzbühel and get ready, and he was just like, "It's it's wild because you you're, you're out of the gate, and then you're, you're straight down until your first turn, and it's just it's almost pure ice. And then there's this if you know that that mountain, there's just this basically a rock wall. And if like that first turn is like, I mean, that could be a widow maker right there. It's one of those sports that are just I don't think the average person can. I mean, I could I could get in the pool and and finish dead last, but I wouldn't drown. Uh, I'm not sure you could put me on a downhill course. I, I don't know that I'd even make it out alive. Put it that way.
3: Oh, it's 100. Uh, isn't it 100 kilometers an hour they go sometimes? Oh It's, it's like 135. Insane. It's 100.
0: It's almost 140. Yeah, it's it's, it's totally wild totally wild uh you you want to maybe talk about health law and policy and and myth myth busting and so you you've got this piece that that uh of course we we were referencing a a while ago you wrote this back in may um and the headline was what first grabbed our attention of course here on the show we keep an eye on a lot of the major publications and, and media outlets across the country and you contributed uh to the Globe and Mail, uh, an opinion piece, May 28th, if people want to go back and read it. Uh, but the headline, I've received death threats. I've been sued. I've been lied about. And you say, here's why I'm committed to debunking misinformation. I mean, it's been almost like a calling for you. And, and you've had your Netflix show about it. And you've, you've written books about it. But have you ever had to work so hard than you have in the last year and a half
3: no, it, it, this has just been—it's been absolutely incredible. And, and look, you know, I, people out there that are, are involved, like Lenore and Joe, are good examples of it. Two great guests, by the way. Um, they've experienced it. We've all—we've all experienced it. But what's happened over the past 18 months is the intensity has just gone up and up and up, and the misinformation has become so polarized. It's become so much about ideology that I think it just ratchets up both the the adverse impact that misinformation can have, but also uh, the tone of those who disagree with you. And so it it has been it's been exhausting. Um, But, you know, the good news, Ryan, is there's this fantastic um, go science team in Canada. You know, we all try to support each other and the team is growing. Uh, But uh, I'll tell you, these individuals who are trying to push misinformation, these entities that are pushing misinformation, they're clever. Right. And they use a whole variety of strategies to try to to silence you. And unfortunately, it it can be effective.
0: uh, This is anecdotal. Uh, I want to tell you so later today. I'm going to be skating uh, with a group of fellas that I've played hockey with, I guess, for about five years now. They've been skating together for 25 years every Wednesday, beer league, shinny. And these are these are some tight, tight friends. I mean, these are guys that have grown up together. In some cases, they've known each other for 30 or 40 years. And there's some. Uh, there are ripples in the pond right now, and not everybody's happy. And And I, and I wonder if any of them are going to hear this, and I wonder if we'll talk about this in the locker room, R- because right now a couple of the longtime attendees, a couple of the longtime participants, they're not allowed in. They're not in the dressing room, and they're not skating with us because they won't get vaccinated. And the group has made a collective decision. Uh, it was a by vote uh, on how we were going to manage people that, made the choice to refrain from getting vaccinated the people that did not get vaccinated for whatever reason and the group collectively decided by a majority vote that if you didn't get double vaxxed you weren't welcome to skate with us and it's causing serious issues as you can imagine off ice as well because these guys have been friends for in some circumstances 30 years These are the types of things that are happening now. This is, in my life, something that's occurring right now, and I bet you almost everybody that's going to hear this interview has a similar story about how their own personal life and their personal relationships are being impacted by this.
3: It's incredible. You're right, especially in Alberta. You know the numbers, Ryan. Uh, We have the most hesitancy anywhere in the world. It's about, or in Canada, Uh, it's about 22%. Um, And that that does real that does real harm that that hesitancy, Um, and and we know we know and there's pretty robust research on this now you know who's hesitant why they're hesitant, we know that a big part of the equation is the spread of misinformation. So so your friends I I can almost guess and as you probably know I hear a a lot from the public on this I can probably guess what they're gonna say. They're gonna say the vaccine's experimental. They're going to say, we don't have long-term data on, on side effects. They're, they're going to say that we don't think it's necessary, that there's natural herd immunity. And all of those things, the thing that's interesting, Ryan, are all of those points are talking points emanating from the anti-vax community, and it shows how powerful the anti-vax community is—that they can insert these these talking points into people's lives and a- actually have an impact on the decisions that they are making for themselves. But more importantly, a decision that impacts the entire Alberta
2: community.
0: So when it when it comes to, and I want to have conversations, and, and it seems like every time you come here, you know, you, you deliver. We want to be able to give people tools. To have these types of conversations with their friends and to per- perhaps make progress, and and uh, you know I'm, I don't appreach, I don't approach the conversation. I do approach objectively, but I have a position here. You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be the type of person. that says some people believe in the vaccine and some people don't, and it's up for you to make the position of this show is that we encourage people to get vaccinated. We believe that the you know vaccination is key. To to moving on ultimately from COVID-19, though we can have a conversation on. I mean, I know that you've you've written on how this is a bit more of a long war. But how important is it to differentiate or discern between vaccine hesitancy and anti-vax positions?
3: I think it's it's really important because the people that are still hesitant, it's it's a very diverse community, right? Not not everyone is a hardcore. Anti vaxxer. And, and it's important to, to recognize that because if you are a hardcore anti vaxxer, if this has become part of your worldview, part of your ideology, it does become very difficult to change your mind. Uh, it's not impossible, but people uh, lie in a uh, on a community, on a continuum, and those at the far end of that, that continuum, the hardcore anti vaxxers, really hard to to change their mind. So it's it's important to recognize that. And then there are individuals that are hesitant, right? And I'm hoping that your friends are in this camp, people who are hesitant and they're hesitant for a whole bunch of different reasons, right? So it is, it can be really frustrating and I'm getting frustrated just thinking about it, but it's so important to listen to them, right? To try to be a little empathetic, to try to get a sense of why they are hesitant and, and then get a sense of where you can send send them to get credible information and also Ryan, to get a sense of what kind of voices are going to be persuasive for them, right you know maybe they're not going to listen to, to cra- their friend crazy Ryan, but maybe there is someone in their life in their community that will be persuasive for them and you're seeing that strategy depl- being deployed more and more in the United States for example uh, and being very very effective and then and then there are those and again, this is a diverse community too. That are just complacent, you know. They they just don't think this is an important topic. Believe it or not, Ryan, they're not really uh, talking about it, thinking about it all the time. They're not doing anything for that community. And I'm hoping I think you know the 18 to to 30 demographic who is very under vaccinated, by the way. I'm hoping that in there there's a lot of room for 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 uh, a vaccination, because I think that there are a lot of people in that in that demographic that are complacent, right? For them, it might be nudges, uh, it might be trying to remove absolutely every single barrier to, to getting a vaccine. And of course, of course, we have got to think about equity and access, and making sure that everyone, everyone has easy access to, to a vaccine. So there's so many different strategies that need to de- de- be, uh, be deployed and they depend on why you're hesitant, why you're complacent, Or if you're a hardcore denier
0: on our live chat, Tracy right now says uh, she says, I can't go to my aunt's memorial uh, because a handful of people refuse to vaccinate and my daughter has lupus. uh, So we're not able to go see other family members because of them. Uh, Another one says, uh, you know, I mean, how about this from Erica since covid cost my brother in law his job and almost everything else in his life, he became a hardcore anti-vax conspiracy theorist. You could see it happening And it's so hard on the family now. I appreciate Erica sharing that, Tim. I've heard that from several people, seeing loved ones go on these journeys down these rabbit holes. One friend in particular, I'm going to leave specifics out of it, told me that his aunt, who I know uh, and who I've had respect for in past, is like full on down the microchip 5G wormhole. I mean, she's really gone off the deep end on this. Do you think that's common? Do you think that's actually? I mean, do you think people like Erica describe someone that's lost everything through this pandemic, their business, their savings, and everything else? Has it been a contributing factor to sending people into, you know, towards sources of information that are that are just way out there?
3: It has, and again, we have evidence to back this up. We know that when people are angry, when when there's a, a great deal of uncertainty, that that conspiracy theories can be enticing, right? They, they provide a narrative that gives you answers as to why, you, why this is going on. And, and that narrative can be particularly attractive if it plays to your worldview, it plays to your emotions, it plays to kind of where you are. And if you're someone who has had a lot of bad things happen because of the pandemic, these kinds of, of conspiracy theories that feed that anger, that play to that anger, can be very, very persuasive. Uh, Look, you know, you said, you know, they've gone down this microchip uh, wormhole. Uh, There's been studies in the United States that have found that anywhere between 20 and 25% of Americans uh, believe the microchip uh, bunk. And this is like a hardcore conspiracy theory, Ryan. This isn't like, Um, you know, we're debating this and this is a hardcore conspiracy theory, right? And that percentage of the population is at least open to it. The study, and this was relatively recent, I think it was in in July, uh, they found that only, only I think it's 47% of Americans were definite that that was false. By the way, it's definitely false (laughs) Um, that there's a microchip in the vaccine. So that really demonstrates this normalization This normalization of pretty extreme views. And we know that normalization has had an impact on on vaccination uptake and vaccination hesitancy.
0: I, I, I acknowledge that science is a journey and I acknowledge that there 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 has been learning and discovery, which is how science works. Uh, but people have looked back and said, you know, whether it's Dr. Teresa Tam or uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci in the United States, or for that matter, Dr. Dina Hinshaw or Dr. Bonnie Henry, or all these names that have become household names, right? Never before have we been able to probably go across the country and name the majority of chief medical officers of health off the top of our head. But first masks weren't important, then masks were important. Then, and, and you hear people, oftentimes those who are hesitant say, well, well." I mean, they've been all over the place. The experts have been all over the place. And and so how are we to trust what they're saying now when it flies in the face of what they were saying a year ago? What do you say to people?
3: Uh, exactly what you started with. You know, Science is a journey, right? And, and the mask thing is fascinating. I, 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 that is thrown at me, I think, every single day. I, maybe not every day, I'll say five times a week uh, as a reason not to trust science. That's a reason to trust science, right? These are recommendations that are responding to emerging science. In early days, there was actually, we didn't have a lot of evidence on on masks. There were credible reasons why the World Health Organization, the CDC, the Public Health Agency of Canada was not certain about about how, how effective they would be. As the science accumulated, and we do have now, we have you know, laboratory studies, we have op- observational studies, it's hard to study this well in a clinical setting, but we have more and more data, we have a body of evidence that says that this is, this is worthwhile. That's exactly what, how, you, how science plays out, and you want scientific recommendations to follow them. Now, when you go to the vaccine, Ryan, I think it's really important to emphasize, there was a great piece in the Washington Post, I think yesterday, that made this point. The va- these vaccines are the most studied vaccines in human history right? Um, we have, you know, hundreds of millions of data points. We have huge, very well done clinical trials. We have so much data on these, on, on, these, uh, on these vaccines. So it's incredibly frustrating when people use, oh, we don't know enough about them. They're experimental as a reason not to get the vaccine. Uh, but you hear that again and again, and it's because the anti-vax rhetoric is resonating with this community. One of the things I find ironic is often the anti-vax community will say, you know, oh, don't be manipulated by big pharma and by the government and by the man. Right. The irony, of course, is they're being manipulated right by the the rhetoric of, of the anti-vax community, the, the denial uh, community. And because they know how to push the buttons, they know how to make their message resonate. And unfortunately, unfortunately, Ryan, it's working.
0: What do we know about about the unvaccinated to this point? I noticed, and, and I recommend people follow you on Twitter. Your account is, is always entertaining and informative at Caulfield Tim. I want to ask you, by the way, about you, you tweeted about sports bunk at the Olympics a while ago. And I want to ask you about that, but not right now. But, but you, you, you furthered or you, you amplified a piece from the Globe and Mail. You didn't write it, but it was, it was what we know about the unvaccinated. Is there a, is there a common thread? I mean, you can't, you can't say that, uh, just to be blunt, you can't say they're all idiots, like there, there are some there are some people that are intelligent people that have seen success in their lives, that are loving and caring parents, that are good community members, and they're not vaccinated. Like, what's the common thread if there is one?
3: Uh, I thought that was a great piece, by the way. Um, uh, it, it, uh, and the, the reason I thought it was a great piece is it makes the point that this community is incredibly diverse. Right. Um, I, I don't know if there is a common thread. First of all, I think it's really important to recognize that there are communities in Canada that have a reason, you know, a justified historical reason not to trust uh, voices of authority. Right. I think that's important to recognize. And and we have to think, how can we engage that community? And part of it is getting people within those communities. Right. To to uh, to work, to be the messenger, to be the voice. there are individuals that are are doing this calculus where um, I'm young and healthy. Um, I hear about the possibility of infertility. I hear about the possibility of these other kinds of of harms. By the way, no evidence to support that at all, not even biologically plausible. But when you're making this sort of risk-benefit calculus and you feel like you're healthy and the risk to you is low, you, the calculus is different, and I think for that community, it's so important to talk about the pro-social reason for getting vaccinated. Why vaccination is so important on a community level. Um, so each one of these communities, uh, each one of these individuals, uh, will need different messaging, different kinds of of. Um, Interactions and and I think it's really important to, to recognize we don't want that to be unilateral, right? We really do want it to be a conversation. And I know there are some great programs across Canada where they do exactly that, where they have these one-on-one conversations where you can phone. I believe Ottawa Public Health is one of them, where you can actually phone and talk one-on-one with someone who will will address your specific concerns, right? Uh, the other thing that is so important, and I know this sounds frivolous, I do think that that uh, we need more influencers. Politicians, celebrities, to step up, and I, and I I feel like a lot of prominent individuals are making this calculus of saying, well, I might get vaccinated, but I'm not going to make it my platform because they're worried about their audience. You know, we got to stop doing that. You know, we need people to normalize getting vaccination. We need to make it the social the social norm, and that does require influencers from a broad range of communities to step up. I wish more athletes would do it. Mm-hmm. I wish more athletes would step up. I wish Tom Brady, I'm calling you out right now, <laughs> step up and tell us about your vaccine experience.
0: Yeah, I, I might worry about that. Tom Brady's a big Trump guy, and, and I, I'm not sure. I that. don't know if he's a big Trump guy. What are you talking <laughs> about? He used to have a, a, a MAGA hat in his locker in the Patriots dressing room. He's a real, he's, okay, he, he's a big. Okay, I've got my
3: Tom Brady doll right there, my Patriots helmet oh, there, patriot
0: that's there. gonna I'm hurt Boston don't talk to me about the Patriots <laughs> okay well I'll gladly not talk about the Patriots but no I, I, I hey you know there's I, I want to talk about our jurisdiction for a second I mean people will hear this across the country but uh you and I both in Alberta I want to put two scenarios or two realities two stories in front of you and, and get you to kind of dissect it number one was the lotto vax right the Alberta government's lotto approach to getting more people vaccinated I actually didn't think it was the worst idea. I thought, you know, you could buy a whole bunch of billboards. You could spend a whole bunch on, on on public information campaigns, and you should. I don't think that you should choose one or the other. But I didn't have any problem with the government dangling a million dollars, which in the grand scheme is, is, I mean, it's a lot of money. It's also really nothing. A uh, million dollars uh, for anybody to get vaccinated. And, and it was one way, also trying to give away tickets to, you know, different events and things like that, trying to get people's attention, trying to get people to get vaccinated. The government trying to get that final 20% or so. To get vaccinated uh, the other story of course is what's going on right now and we see the protests uh sustained protests in calgary and edmonton daily uh, of people saying that they don't support the government relaxing these COVID restrictions the people that i see defending the government's move are people that are saying we got to do it at some point And at this point, if you're not vaccinated, you're probably not getting vaccinated, which means we need to get closer to herd immunity, which means the sooner the better. So all of this ties together right into, I I suppose, the most focused question, which is how do you reach that final 20 percent or can you?
3: Uh, So I'm a glass half full guy, Ryan. I, I think that we can we can get more individuals uh, vaccinated um, you know I've, I've talked about some of the strategies that are needed and and i was sort of like, like you i was very very similar to your position on on the lottery um, i you know it's kitchen sink time let's try different approaches there has been some data for the, by the way the data on the success of lotteries very mixed you know there has been anecdotal evidence from some jurisdictions in the united states that that kind of incentive mechanism can work there's been a study that came out Today, I think in in Nature, uh, one of the Nature journals, talking about how, how you know text nudges can make a difference, can get get people to get vaccinated. Um, so I, I think that we need to try these different strategies to get to get va- uh, more people uh, more people vaccinated. So I, I I don't think I don't look the the hesitancy, complacency, denier hurdles are high. But I, I think we can at least get over the complacency one and maybe nibble away at some of those that, that r- remain hesitant. So we absolutely have to keep trying.
0: What do you make of the, the, the thought or the theory that the reason why Alberta is so bullish on dropping these restrictions? I mean, by the end of August, Tim, it's essentially a free-for-all. Like, by the end of August, you can legally know... That you have COVID-19, you can know you're sick and you can step onto a packed city bus and cough and hack and literally not be doing anything. I mean, you are doing something wrong, in my strong opinion, but you're not doing anything illegal. I mean, that's the reality. What do you make of of the ideology or the theory behind it that at some point we have to pursue herd immunity and at some point you got to open back up?
3: Well, I, I want to talk about a little bit of a paradox here, an ideology paradox before I, before I answer answer you. And don't let me not answer you, by the way. Uh, the one of the, the paradoxes, we know that one, that, you know. so Alberta is the most hesitant jurisdiction, right? Um, and we know part of that is because of ideology. There has been a lot of research that tells us that individuals who are conservative are more likely to be hesitant. People who are conservative, more likely to spread misinformation, believe misinformation, Um, Now, I'm not judging people's ideology. I think it's great to have a diversity of views. I'm just reporting what the evidence says uh, about the role of ideology here. So there's a little bit there's this irony that it's the conservative ideology that's created the hesitancy. Now the conservative government is is going to open up. I would say created the hesitancy. Let me rephrase that has contributed to uh, the the information environment that invites hesitancy. How's that? Uh, how's that? But we, 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 they're the government that, you know, is conservative and, and now we're the one ones opening up. So what do I think about the, about the move? Um, you know, I think it is complex, uh, but if we look at other jurisdictions, the UK, the United States, particularly look at Florida, we know, we know that this can be, Problematic, and it's pro- we're, we are probably moving too too quickly. I don't know why we can't ease into this. I don't know why we can't ease into this. Why why it has to be this this moment? And of course, the reason it has to be a moment is because it, it plays to politics, right? It plays to this this grant this i this image of 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 a grand opening. Um, so, you know, I think that, that that's that is, I think it is problematic. I would like you to see us ease into th- this more sensibly, especially given the data, given the data that we're seeing around the Delta, especially given the, the data that we're seeing around ha- how transmissible it, it, it can be. Now, on the other side, and Lenora might talk about this, and she's, I agree with you, she's fantastic. You know, and we're seeing this again in the UK and some of these other jurisdictions in the United States more broadly, where the hospitalization rates are, are lower, right? So that's the response, right? So yes, we may have these problems, but we're not going to have the same burden on the healthcare system because we have so many people who are are vaccinated. One thing I really don't agree with. And we have a piece coming out on this in the near future. This idea of, of herd immunity, right? Let's just you know rely on herd immunity. A uh, whole bunch of reasons why that's a mistake. But we also know it is, it, it's a mistake from an epidemiological perspective. You know, vaccination uh, um, immunity is just is just better.
0: I'm happy to see that uh, journalist Max Fawcett is watching us live this morning and he's chiming in on the live chat and he he says with regards to vaccines he says carrots have not worked and sticks (laughs) will and uh, so I don't know what Max's interpretation of sticks might be I think probably one one example might be the idea of a vaccine passport or, or required vaccines for certain did you see by the way the band offspring booted their drummer because he wouldn't get vaccinated you see this. I didn't see yeah. that. I'm yeah. not a
3: fan of Offspring, but way to go. You're, yeah.
0: <laughs> Offspring takes <laughs> me back, man. That, that uh, Anyway, I, I go down a, a rabbit hole about Offspring. But yeah, Pete Parada, the drummer, says the reason he's out of the band uh, is, is because Dexter Holland, the lead singer, who, by the way, has a PhD in molecular biology, uh, right, that's yeah, right. Has said, you're, you're not touring with us, you're not playing with us, you won't get vaccinated. So he's out of the band. um th- That's one stick. uh I talked to Dr. Ubaka Ogbogu. I've got a ton of respect for him. I'm not sure. Uh, here's my caveat I said the doctor is smarter than me, but I'm not sure I agree with him on everything. He says that vaccine passports uh, cannot be justified. And if people didn't catch that interview, I encourage them to because it was fantastic. Um, I kind of have mixed feelings on it, but but like I said, I mean, I gave you our hockey example, our shinny example. I've got no problem. Um, quite frankly, I said to those two guys, they say, you're not letting us play. I said, we're letting you play. You just got to get vaccinated. That's your choice. Uh, what's your thought on the carrot versus the stick?
3: Well, well, first of all, Ubaka is uh, he's one of my my best friends uh so if if ubaka sees us he's, you know he thinks we're friends this is sad <laughs> that's probably gonna be his response so ubaka yes it's true you're one of my best friends that's my sad world um
0: uh, that's kind of I, an underhanded compliment, you know. You're, <laughs> no, your your world is, awesome. is so sad that Ubaka is one of your best friends. Yeah. <laughs> that's how you <laughs> take so that. Small. Yeah. I
3: mean, Ubaka's got so many friends. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's he's Ubaka is awesome. And that was a great interview by the way. Yeah, July 21st. Um, look, I, I I I I unlike Ubaka, I, I think I I favor I favor passports for a bunch of reasons. Um first of all, I think they're inevitable right? They're basically happening now. I've traveled, I've traveled basically once since the pandemic, very recently. Um, and they ask you your vaccination, they ask you your va- vaccination status, right? So you have to hand over some documents. That's a passport. You know, back Rebecca talked about this, you know, defining what a passport is. That's a passport, right? They're asking what your status is. That's, so it's going to happen on a practical level. Anyway, there is also some evidence from some jurisdictions. Uh, you know, um, France being the most obvious. Yes, there have been protests, but there, but we also know from France that passports have caused the vaccination rates to go up. So, I, you know, I agree with the the journalist that that uh, that wrote in. I think we have to start thinking about some some sticks now i think these sticks have to be implemented in a way that's ethical that's equitable uh that consider appropriate opt-outs you know that that can be justified but you know we're talking man, s- mandates in certain situations i don't love that term but mandates it's some form of a passport because i think it's going to happen anyway let's do it well i think the privacy issues can be dealt with um uh and and all of those things and i think one, this is one of ubaka's points and it's, it's super important if there are equity issues and access issues to vaccines, then passports aren't a great idea, right? Because they just sort of amplify those those equity and access issues. But once we get over that hump, and I think we're you know we're, we, ha- we do need to deal with those issues when it comes to access to vaccines, the, the ethical issues associated with passports start to go down. And, and I think the privacy issues are often overplayed. A good friend, another good friend of mine and Blake, I, mean, I am calling you a good friend of mine. Blake Murdoch wrote a wonderful piece for the Globe and Mail where he, he talked about uh, you know, he suggested the privacy issues are kind of being overplayed and kind of playing into the hands of the anti-vax community. So this sort of rights language. Right. Um, and, and I agree with that, you know, the, the privacy issues are real, but they can be addressed.
0: You talked about COVID as a long war and why it's important uh, for us to recognize this. Um, I should mention you're the author of The Vaccination Picture, uh, which was published in 2017. This was not published on the heels of or, or through the pandemic, uh, but I do want to mention that if people want to check that book out, it's one of your many best selling books. But COVID is a long war. Uh, what does that mean to you?
3: Well, you know, I, I think that this is it, it's it's going to be around a while. And and people have started probably starting to hear that narrative. And what's interesting is, is I think some of the messaging around COVID, I, would, I wonder if you agree with this, Ryan, was was less than ideal, right? Because it was really portrayed as this battle that we're going to fight and we're going to win. And then the sun is going to shine. Right. And that's very much how it's portrayed. And I get that because that's motivating. Um, But this is going to be something that continues. It's going to be a battle that goes on. Look, I'm not saying that we're going to have to have these extreme public health measures forever. You know, that's just not realistic. But I, I do also think we need to recognize the role of infectious diseases in our lives going forward might be very different than it has been Uh, in the past. Secondly, secondly, I think that this, you know, for my own field of study, uh, the misinformation battle is going to continue. You know, I I keep thinking it's going to ramp down (laughs) my naive half glass half full attitude, but every month it gets worse. Every month it gets more ideological. Every month the tone becomes more uh, severe. uh, uh, And so this is another battle that is going to continue. I think I think battling misinformation, Ryan, is going to be one of the defining characteristics of our era. Hmm.
0: And I mean, you've been on the front line of that. It's for me, I uh, you know, it's it's tough for me to watch. I think what what happens now is especially when when public health is politicized and you and I have spoken about this before, uh, you know, there there are these protect our province uh, demonstrations. And I can't say that I blame The official opposition in Alberta, the NDP for showing up at them and ensuring that their MLAs uh, are are, and their critics are are in all the photos and they're there. Um, But it it sure makes it look like an an NDP endorsed or an NDP sponsored type rally. Well, at the same time, the government's decisions are. UCP decisions. Right. The UCP government is deciding to do this. And then all of a sudden you have all the quarreling uh, back and forth. And you get these comments from, you know, somewhat bombastic issues managers and press secretaries from government, you know, saying things like uh, if, if someone were to indicate a concern about the province easing restrictions or the province opening back up or h- however you want to phrase it. They're concerned about it. They're saying nobody under 12 is vaccinated. We're going back to school in a month. The Delta variant is a reality. Other jurisdictions like Florida are showing, are, and, and and for that matter, Louisiana and other states are are sh- showing that we're not out of this yet. And And Florida's vaccination rates are actually a little bit better than Alberta's right now. And Florida's really struggling right now. But then you'll get the government messaging. It's very predictable. It'll say, you know, it's unfortunate that some people want to, you know, live, you know, hidden away in their basement forever. It's unfortunate that some people want to want to worry about COVID forever. Our government is focused on moving forward. And and you gaslight people, you attempt to anyway, and you create the circumstance where people think, am I nuts to be concerned about them? Am I am I? A hypochondriac? Am I? Am I lighting my hair on fire to worry about my kids going to school? A, am, am I one of these sort of overcaffeinated type critics? I mean, is the government right about me right now? And people are being made, I think, to feel stupid. Uh, you know, people are people are, are are being made to feel like, you know, I mean, I know some people don't prefer the phrase, but, but they're made to feel crazy for feeling the way that they do, which would probably qualify as nothing more than. Prudent.
3: It, it is frustrating. I've had government officials who will go un, unnamed uh, comments on my Twitter feed saying, you know, people want the, the pandemic to last forever. I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm fortunate I get to work with public health officials at both the provincial and, and federal level. I don't know a single expert, um, you know, clinician, <laughs> public health authority, that doesn't want this to end. Everyone wants this, wants this to end, but they have to polarize the conversation. They have to create this a a false dichotomy, right? That you are either full lockdown or fully open up uh, the economy. Um, And of course that's not the case. Everyone is trying to strike, strike the right balance. The key is you want that balance to be struck with the best available, the best available science um uh, and, and you're right we've seen this this polarization happen in the united states it's fascinating i mean it's a how in the united states um vaccination hydroxychloroquine masks you name the topic it's become an ideological flag and when that happens you know that the science has gone off the rail none of those conversations should be about ideology right all of those conversations should be about the science and the evidence, but in the United States, you know, it, it's more black and white than it is in Canada. But the themes are very similar, right? And the trends are very similar. And we also know that the, the there's a recent study that came out. I'm going to say like six weeks ago that, that that told that tells us that that rhetoric in the United States is having an impact on on the the canadian public discourse there's a study that found that it's you know it's the us social media that's informing the canadian uh discussion around a lot of these topics how depressing is that
0: you know i thought of you yesterday we, we were talking about uh holistic uh, approaches to anything whether it's wildfire management or personal health or or whatever, different approaches people might take. And I thought of you in particular because I started saying, you know, you may go to your GP for something and you may get a prescription or you may go see your chiropractor or perhaps you may go see an acupuncturist. And then I thought of you and your comments on homeopathic medicine or you might prefer to call it homeopathy, right? And, uh, and I thought of a tweet That you sent out, this is just a couple of days ago, where you said our our manuscript, homeopathy is pseudoscience BS has been accepted. And then you go on to say, reminder, the entire paper is background. Homeopathy is pseudoscience BS, methods, homeopathy is pseudoscience BS, results, homeopathy is pseudoscience BS, and conclusion. Homeopathy is pseudoscience BS. You know you're probably going to offend some people with that take. (laughs) What do you have against homeopathy and how much time would you like to answer the question? Oh, look,
3: homeopathy is an easy one. I love the topic because you don't have to pull your punches at all, Ryan. It is complete nonsense. The paper that we submitted, which actually was accepted, I love that, uh, is 100% correct. And uh, we're going to have like all these co-authors on it too, which I think is, is really funny. But homeopathy is a really good example of pseudoscience that has absolutely no evidence to support it at all. It's not even scientifically plausible. I don't know if you know how homeopathy works. It's this idea that you put a substance in water and you dilute it to nothingness. And then that the water holds the memory of the substance and light cures light. It's all this complete nonsense. Um, no clinical trials support it. Scientifically implausible. It's complete BS. But the reason I love it is it's a great example of how misinformation can live on despite the reality and it's often presented as if it's scientific and that's the other reason it's such a great target right it's not something about a different worldview or a different way of you know spiritual approach to health they're presenting it as if it's science-based and it's complete nonsense so yeah when that paper comes out uh hopefully (laughs) that they won't catch on uh i'll pass it on and by the way real quick ryan i know we're probably running out of time The other reason reason I did that is it also highlights something that's called predatory journals, right? So these are these journals that pretend like they're real journals. You basically pay to get in there. And the reason that's important to our discussion is a lot of the anti-vaxxers will use predatory journals to make it look like they have real science to back up what they're saying. We've seen that happen a lot over the pandemic. Uh, and so this journal, you know, is, is going to be very similar to that, that nonsense.
0: Well, and I was, I heard somebody talk the other day about, uh, you know, they, they had been frustrated because a friend of theirs had, had wondered there was a case of COVID-19 in their family. And they were very concerned considering who it was that had it and some of their specific health concerns. And one of their friends had reached out, I think in earnest, and had asked if they had tried oil of oregano and had asked if they had tried some other approaches. And my friend was kind of they were ready to put their head through a wall Uh, and it was just what had prompted me to to ask you about that before we let you go because we've kept you way over time we appreciate every minute you give us Tim Um, I did want to ask you about sports bunk at the Olympics the timeliness of the. you know this brings our conversation full circle Um, you took aim at cupping which I I was a little surprised to see because I've seen a lot of athletes I saw that the, the legendary snowboarder Sean White tweeted a while ago that he was doing the cupping thing I thought that that was all just part of massage I thought that was all part of muscle relaxation but it was one of the the things that you cited.
3: Yeah, there's so much sports, punk, no evidence to support company. I've tried it. I I posted a picture. I got cupping done in Hong Kong for the show, actually. Yeah. Um, uh, No evidence to support it at all. And the whole idea is it's it's supposed to align your life force energy uh, in a particular way. I really enjoyed my cupping experience. The the practitioner was so nice. It was this great environment. It was kind of uh, an unusual sensation, but no evidence to really support it. Uh, but athletes will try anything, right? And and I totally get it. There might be this placebo effect associated with it, but things like cupping, you know, the taping, K-tape, no yeah. evidence to support Seems that. Seems like everybody's either. doing that.
0: All the sprinters are doing it now.
3: No, it, it doesn't do anything. And there's good... Clinical data to back this up. There's no evidence to support that it works. They've actually have studied it. If it does work, and I, I'm skeptical, it, its effect is tiny. Um, you know, the nose strip, also another you know silly, silly thing. You can go on and on and on. Um, but the reason I find it problematic is, hey, if the athletes, if the athletes, if that, if if, if Andre de did any of those things, I'd be all for it. You know, go Andre. The problem is that uh, it legitimizes these these practices, and then individuals try to you know sell cupping to, to cure you know real issues, and that's exactly what happened after the real Olympics, which I call the cupping Olympics, because you know Michael Phelps had those marks on it, and after that, cupping just took off, despite the fact there's no evidence to support it
0: at all. I know you've 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 detailed your deep roster of good friends. Um, which which leads me to believe you don't need any more, which is good because I'm not going to introduce you. There's no way I'm introducing you to my pal who is convinced that the copper bracelet that he wears on the golf course has improved his game. He is convinced. As a matter of fact, if I were able to steal that bracelet and hide it in my golf bag, I think he'd probably shoot 10 over his handicap.
3: It does not work. <laughs> <laughs> it does not work. That's placebo effect. That's like it's the placebo effect. For sure. But I totally get it. You know, when it comes to sports, we all have our rituals yeah. and things that we do that superstitions. We right. You know, I I did. I did. Um, so I get I have one of my daughters is uh, is an elite athlete and she you know, she has me as a father and she's like all in on all of this stuff. So, uh, of course, I'm her dad. So that means I'm wrong. 100%. Yeah,
0: sure. Dad, can't you just go <laughs> along with this? Can you quit being such a buzzkill with your fact checking uh, all the time? Anything, Ryan, I've learned. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, listen, your fact. Fact checking. And, and, and I think that your courageous commentary uh, is prior to the reason probably why you were appointed uh, to the Royal Society of Canada Task Force to help support Canada's response to and recovery from COVID-19 of course you're uh, Canada research chair in health law and policy uh, the best selling author of books like The Vaccination Picture Is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything and your most recent Relax Damn It a user's guide to the age of anxiety people can of course also check out your Netflix show which is uh, one of my favorites I really enjoy it plus I get a huge kick out of the fact that we know you so this <laughs> this feels sort of like all of our show A User's Guide to Cheating Death Professor Timothy Caulfield thanks so much for making time for us thanks for hanging out into overtime this was a lot of fun
3: thanks really enjoyed it Ryan yeah you take care
0: you bet make sure you follow Tim on Twitter too he's uh, you know what he's he's actually one of the very few follows and one of the very few people I follow that I actually go search out his profile I'm like, I wonder what Caulfield's been up to. And I'll go search it out. Otherwise, I kind of rely on the algorithm, which is maybe my greatest mistake when it comes to social media. You all of a sudden realize, I haven't heard from that person in a while. What have they been doing? You can let us know what you think about what uh, Professor Caulfield had to say there. Some, some interesting uh, subject matter, certainly. And, and, um, and we always want to hear from you as well. I mean, the, the stories of, of how these hypotheticals are playing out in your real life. Um, those are oftentimes uh, the the emails that catch our attention the most. That's the real life stuff. That's the real talk. Right? Talk at ryanjesperson.com is where you can find us. Yesterday, when I talked to Sapria Davetti, and she had mentioned that they had just moved houses. How kind of her to make sure that her Wi Fi was ready to rock and roll. She had enough unpacked to be able to spend some time in conversation with us. But what a pain in the ass moving is. Like, if we're being honest, right? She says, yeah, we unpack the toddler's boxes first. You got to get the, you know, the cutlery and the plates out. And then who knows, right? It's and this isn't even to mention the stress that comes with moving itself. The team at Alta Moving and Storage, you can find them online at altastorage.ca. Proud to take the stress out of moving as much as they can. I mean, they're experts in finding solutions for moving and portable storage in the metro Edmonton region. They've got these pod style moving containers. They drop them off at your house. If you need the labor, they're able to provide the helping hands as well. If you'd rather do it yourself, you tell them the timeline you need. When you're ready to go, they'll pick up that pod-style container. They'll drop it off at your destination. They can even store it for a while. Maybe you're having your foundation redone. Maybe you're doing a home renovation. Maybe you've had a flood. Whatever the case is, they're there to take the stress out of some of life's most stressful situations. You make sure you tell the team at Alta Storage that you heard about them on Real Talk again at altastorage.ca. Also big shout out to the team at Park Power. I don't have to tell you probably by now that they are powering our hashtag RealtalkRJ, a reminder that they have different options on how your electricity rates are calculated. If you want the variable rate, if you prefer the fixed rate, they can offer both, all the details at parkpower.ca. And there's no commitment there on your end in other words, if you've signed up for the fixed rate, but you go, eh, I'm having second thoughts there. There's no cancellation penalty. You can change the structure of your contract with them anytime. How customer focused is that? A reminder, the promo code 2021-REALTALK takes 70 bucks off your first bill at parkpower.ca. We'll continue our conversation about, and I'm using the word on purpose, even though I know it's going to tick some of you off. It's kind of the whole point where we're going to go with Dr. Stephen Taylor here as we emerge from COVID-19. We know it's not gone. We know it's not solved. As Professor Caulfield just reiterated, it's a long war. But conversation is moving toward next steps. Patios are open again. Businesses are starting to offer services like they did in past. Maybe you're heading back into the office for the first time in a year and a half. What if you're feeling a bit anxious about it? What, what if you're feeling trepidatious? What if you're actually overcome with concern over your kids heading back to school, or maybe your loved ones heading back downtown into a what feels like a crowded office? What's to be expected, and how do we manage it? Dr. Stephen Taylor is a professor, a clinical psychologist. In the Department of Psychiatry at the University of British Columbia, his most recent book published just a few weeks before the outbreak of COVID-19, The Psychology of Pandemics, Preparing for the Next Global Outbreak of Infectious Disease. Dr. Taylor, welcome to the show and thanks for making time for us today.
2: Thanks so much, Ryan.
0: Talk about timing. Did, did, <laughs> did, did you have a sense of what the world was
2: about to wrestle with as you were putting that the final touches on that book? I knew a pandemic was coming and about July of 2019, as I was wrapping up the book, I thought, man, I better get this finished. What if a pandemic arose before I could publish this book? And so I published it thinking a pandemic's coming in the next Years or so, but I didn't realize it would be weeks. That was just a a weird coincidence.
0: So, I mean, as we've talked, we've just spent you know forty minutes or so talking about the evolution of uh, scientific discovery and the evolution of public health practices and mandates and the and the like. I'm really curious. I'm excited, as a matter of fact, to pick your brain on the psychology of pandemics. Was there that same learning curve, so to speak? I mean, was there as much learning on the psychology of all this from March of 2020 until now and moving forward as well?
2: There has been. um, There's been a lot of learning. Um, Although a lot of the things that happened during COVID-19 occurred in previous pandemics and outbreaks. It was quite remarkable that there was almost nothing new, but there was the pace, the pace and magnitude of things. So there were, you know, conspiracy theories and mask non-adherence and anti-vax attitudes. That's old stuff that happened before, but it was remarkable to see it so so rapidly and on such a massive scale. I think social media and the 24-7 news cycle um, contributed to that and provided the technology for getting those social movements out there on a broader base.
0: You are, uh, I mean, you're the author of of, uh, more than 20 books which have been translated into a number of different languages, more than 300 scientific publications. You've, You've served as a member of the federal government's expert panel on COVID-19 you're a co-leader of the psychology of pandemics network Uh, all of this is relevant to what we want to talk to you about today uh, with regards to the so-called cave syndrome or what some people are referring to as COVID stress syndrome can can you give us a bit of a 10,000 foot view here so we can generally (laughs) understand it before we start to dig into the details
2: yeah there's been a Um, The COVID stress syndrome is different from cave syndrome. We we coined the term COVID stress syndrome to characterize the degree of anxiety that people were experiencing around COVID-19. A lot of other investigators were calling it coronaphobia, as if it was just a simple phobia. And it's way more complicated than that. People who are stressed out about COVID, many of these people aren't worried about getting infected. They're worried about paying the rent or buying food or losing their jobs and so forth. And so... um, In our research, we found the syndrome of all these things that hung together, the fear and the um, the socioeconomic worries and so forth. But we think of it as an adjustment disorder. There's an excessive amount of anxiety during the pandemic and that anxiety for most people will abate. So that's different. Cave syndrome was a, a different term coined by some other investigator. The the bottom line is there's no such thing as cave syndrome. There are lots of reasons why people might be reluctant to leave the safety of their homes when a post-pandemic period is declared. So calling it cave syndrome really doesn't do anyone any service because it could be any number of a different number of disorders that could be causing a person to stay at home. And unless you do a good assessment and find out why they're reluctant to leave the home, you're not gonna be able to come up with a good treatment program so calling so sorry, sorry go ahead
0: well no i was just gonna say i'm 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 grateful to have you say this uh you know i i went on a bit of a rant just a short time ago about how you know i'm, I'm quite frustrated as a matter of fact at how much this has been politicized and i understand that when politicians are involved it's an inevitable outcome it's almost mm. part of the human condition but but you know mm. detractors or critics of, for example alberta government move i mean to to move away from pandemic restrictions are being written off by government spokespersons as people who are afraid you know people that want to stay in their basement forever people that want to be the people that never want covid to end i think not only is it oversimplifying it and misunderstanding it i think it's also quite insulting to people that might have very valid concerns
2: i agree with you pandemics are complicated they there is no simple answer to any of these things there's no simple answer as to why people don't leave their homes. You need to understand the individual circumstances and blaming and shaming people. I mean, it's been done throughout this pandemic and it's never worked. It doesn't work. It just makes people feel bad. So how would someone
0: recognize uh, signs of, or let me ask you this, how does somebody know uh, if they're experiencing COVID stress syndrome? What are the signs?
2: Okay. So, It can be really hard to spot the signs in yourself because these levels of stress often creep up and up and up and up. And before you know it, you're irritable, you're not sleeping, you're overeating, you're consuming more drugs than you normally might do. You're drinking too much. You're not getting exercise. You're sitting in front of the television to distract yourself from the anxieties around you. The key thing is other people. If other people are saying to you, hey, there seems to be something wrong with you, you're not your usual self, then that's a good indication that the anxiety might be getting the better of you. You know, it's tricky. It's, it's a continuum. There's no hard or fixed cutoff point. Some degree of anxiety is normal and adaptive. But if you're finding that the anxiety is, is running your life and ruining your life, you can't work because you're anxious, you can't um, fulfill your roles as a parent or caregiver because you're anxious, then that's a good warning sign that you really need to do something about this anxiety. You need to, to seek some help for it.
0: I think the self-medicating thing is big um you know i mean I'm, i i love and i make a commitment to this audience i'll keep things real and i'll be honest about things you know my alcohol intake has been way up this year i put on 20 pounds this year literally yeah. um I, I i've never been more out of shape i've never felt worse about my personal appearance and my personal health quite frankly um i feel like i'm in a rut right now i know exactly why that is and it's entirely my doing there's no one else to blame it's been part of this past year, and when I look back on it, I, I to be quite honest, I have moments where I'm, I'm quite ashamed of. I'm quite disappointed in myself, quite frankly. Um, and and I and I think that that's something that people are. I see more and more people speaking honestly and openly about that, which I think is a good thing, yep. because I think step number one is probably recognizing it. Step number two, which yep. I'm not at yet, is probably understanding why that happened and how to get back on track.
2: hmm Yeah, I mean, you're not alone there. Lots of people, in fact, surveys done during 2020 in, in Canada and the United States is, people steadily gained weight. You know, about six to 10 pounds during the pandemic. It's a stay-at-home orders. We're told to stay home, make our home situation comfortable, and what makes things more comfortable than a big bag of snacks in front of the TV. Yeah. So it happened to a lot of people in North America. Uh, if you go to countries like Bangladesh, the opposite happened. People lost jobs and starved and died. So North America, we're getting fatter. Uh, Bangladesh and developing countries, they're getting thinner and dying. So very different reactions to the. It's hard to believe it's the same pandemic. In that it's influenced people in very different ways.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Heidi writes in. She's watching us live on YouTube. She yeah. says, "I'm generally a, a cave dweller." I guess when you when you ascribe it to yourself, it's not as much of an insult. Heidi says, I am a cave dweller. She says, but I volunteered at an event this past weekend on on behalf of a child. And it was like an awakening. Heidi said, I really enjoyed being around people again. Uh, I saw another friend of mine uh, post a photo. He and his girlfriend on a patio and they were drinking margaritas. And he said the patio's packed. And and then he, he had this one sentence that was kind of ominous. He said, I sure hope this all works out because i really needed this so he's there and his mental health is is he's experiencing a positive health experience mental health experience being out and about but still hanging over his head i sure hope this is gonna work out right Mm. i sure hope there's not another wave how do you recommend people reconcile that a willingness or even a desire to be back out with people versus yeah. i mean what we've been conditioned to think over the you know the past year and a half where you get a little bit twitchy if you hear somebody cough near you don't you
2: Yeah. So the situation here is very different from 1918, the Spanish flu. When the first wave ended of that flu, they thought it was over and said, yay. And they all rushed out and socialized. And then that precipitated a second wave, which was even worse. But then when that pandemic eventually came to an end, people were pretty convinced in their own minds it was over. And so for that and a lot of other reasons, there was that Roaring 20 scenario. Now, what's stopping that happening here right now is, People are thinking, oh, is this over or are we waiting for the fourth wave to occur? And so I can understand um, the the caller in saying, I needed this. I needed to get out and socialize because we're social animals. Most of us have been craving that. Not all of us, but most of us. But of course, it's at the back of people's minds. Is this really over? And I really like Heidi's description too. There's There's nothing wrong with being a cave dweller. If you enjoy it, if you're a person who's happier with books than people, that's great. And if it's, uh, and if it's not creating any problems in your life, fantastic. But I was also um, pleased that she, she went out and tried socializing to see what it was like. It uh, sounds like at her own pace, she was in control of it and was pleasantly surprised. So I hope more and more people get experiences like Heidi experienced those pleasant surprises. You're feeling some trepidation. Oh, wow. Is it safe for me to go to this big gathering? I'll try it anyway. And then you're pleasantly surprised at how nice it is. I hope a lot of people experience that.
0: If I'm going to ask you uh, whether or not you believe there will be long-term psychological impacts uh, from this pandemic, do I need to specify or zoom in on certain demographics? Or certain jurisdictions or certain age groups?
2: No. The sad news is we know that the poor and marginalized and ethnic minorities will suffer the worst. They were suffering the worst during this pandemic. They were the targets, some of them, of of discrimination and racial prejudice. Um, That group, as in other previous disasters, fare the worst. So that's the group that we really need to be mindful of and make sure they have the services they need. Um, long-term consequences, well, it, it depends on your personal history and what happens to you during COVID. Uh, our research and research of others shows that if you have a history of um, emotional problems before COVID, they're likely to become worse during COVID. Not all, but most. And for some people who developed COVID during this pandemic and were hospitalized and put on a ventilator, some of those people developed post-traumatic stress disorder. So some of these people will come out of this pandemic um, the worse off. But let me paraphrase a quote from a historian about 1918 that I think captures our situation. Uh, This was a guy by the name of Crosby, a historian very well-regarded book on the Spanish flu. He said at a societal level, there was no trace of the Spanish flu afterwards, no discernible trace. I mean, I hunted around, I found some sheet lyrics to the you know, Spanish flu blues. If you go to Bauer house you can find um, the Bauer house the art and craft movement during the 20s. You can find chairs they developed that were easier to clean, but that's about it. There was Very little residue at a societal level. Now, getting back to Crosby, Crosby said where it did influence people was at the atomic level, the atoms of society, and that's people. So coming out of COVID-19, most people will do okay, but some of these individuals will develop severe chronic psychological problems that will persist unless they get help.
0: Dr. Taylor, what do you tell people? uh, I mean, we've asked you earlier in our conversation how someone could recognize signs of or symptoms of COVID stress syndrome. Yep. This may be too subjective of a question, but
2: how do you know when it's time to seek help? Okay, um, there are all, there's no one recipe, but one, one approach I like is a kind of stepped care approach. You know, first checking in with yourself, asking yourself, well, am I stressed out? Should I get back doing the things that I used to do, getting out for a walk, managing my diet, setting up a routine? Limiting the amount of exposure to scary news. Don't get all of your news from social media, you know, limit your dose of news. So try all those things, reaching out to friends and family. And if that doesn't work, then consider the next step. And the next step might be there's some wonderful internet programs or phone apps. Like in BC, they had the Bounce Back program, which is a cognitive behavioral uh, online self-directed program to help people manage anxiety or depression that's not working, then the next step, would I suggest, go see your family doctor about a referral uh, to see a mental health practitioner such as a psychologist or psychiatrist. But a lot of people will find that these little self-help hacks that they can find on the Internet or implement themselves, they do the trick for a lot of people.
0: This is uh, it's been neat to see some of our audience members describing you know, how their own journeys and and how they've been managing the past number of months. And, you know, I mean, Shalane, for example, says my kids are back in swimming lessons this week. It's the first activity they've done. And I worry about them being out and I'm definitely feeling it. You know, and I hope I hope that this all works out. That's that's the feeling she has the I hope this all works out feeling. You know, meantime, we've got other audience members, you know, Wigwith says, I I don't have much interest, quite frankly, in going out right now. Some outdoor stuff has been fun, but I'm totally fine staying in. I'm taking up new hobbies. I'm trying new things. I've been growing my own food, which has become super rewarding. I mean, Adventure Cycling says the pandemic kicked me in the ass and it made me realize that life's too short to not get out there and do all you can to enjoy it, like riding mountain passes. So there you go. That that's That's how that spurred that. Audience member for it. I guess probably what this is reiterating is that there's and this may be an obvious statement, not one formula for achieving or maintaining mental health through something this challenging.
2: You're absolutely right, it highlights the complexities and that's the reality of life. And if you go on the internet to self-help blogs, they will offer you something like seven steps to overcoming this or that. It's a formula and it's a formula that works for many people, it doesn't work for everyone. And as you point out, Ryan, there are all kinds of reactions to the pandemic. Some people have learned to be completely comfortable at home and have no interest in going out into the crowds. And if that's how they like to live, that's fine. Other people are understandably like Charlene, anxious about transitions you know, transitioning back to work or transitioning to have my kids going back to school or back to uh, classes like swimming classes. That's understandable. Those transitions are anxiety provoking for lots of people and still other people um, as just the cyclist, uh, which is a great example, are describing post-traumatic growth that is silver linings or ways of uh, uh, surviving and not just surviving, but thriving during adversities. And that's a, that's a typical reaction in after traumas that many people will describe these, these silver linings or ways in which they've grown as human beings during adversity like a pandemic. I don't think
0: I've ever heard the phrase post-traumatic growth before. I've never heard that before. <laughs>
2: Well, I'm I'm surprised because the media is latching onto all of these psychological phenomena, trying to understand COVID. Uh, Post traumatic growth was around for a long time before COVID. It was studied in natural disasters, and we just published a research study on it. And we found that about two thirds of people said, "Yeah, there have been some silver linings." Uh, you know, getting back in shape, great appreciation for friends and family, or finding that you feel more resilient to stress because you've been through something you've never been through before and survived did you learn
0: something or let me ask you i mean i think that we we've all learned something uh i mean you you literally wrote a book you wrote the book on you know the psychology of pandemics what What? would you what would you rewrite or what might you edit or what might the prologue or the epilogue look like now a year later if you were to change it up a little bit based on your observations
2: well now it would be the new psychology of pandemics or Psychology of Pandemics version 2.0, because there has been so much research. It's the amount of research conducted during the past 18 months on the psychology of pandemics is greater than the amount of research on all previous outbreaks, except perhaps for HIV. So we've learned a lot during this pandemic. Um there's a lot of been, been a lot of historical analyses as well by ourselves and other investigators that helped prove provide insights. So um, fundamentally, the structure of the book or the phenomena described won't change, but there'll be a whole lot of additions, new disorders, new syndromes, new ways of understanding things that will um, elaborate what has already been known about the psychology of pandemics.
0: Doctor, uh, we're so grateful for your time uh, today. And, and I want to recommend that people check out your website, drstepentaylor.com. Of course, they can find your book anywhere you get good books The Psychology of Pandemics Preparing for the Next Global Outbreak of Infectious Disease. Uh, Dr. Stephen Taylor, a professor and clinical psychologist out of the University of British Columbia, thanks for spending some time with us today.
2: Well, thanks very much. I appreciate it. You got it.
0: He's also, by the way, an avid scuba diver, but I decided not to take time talking. I can talk scuba diving all day long. I
2: know. I was but, like, and he
1: likes taking photos when he's scuba yeah. diving. So I was like, just waiting for you to talk about scuba diving and, I know. and octopuses. Is, I, oh,
0: my, Oh, why didn't we? Yeah, we could have. Based on his accent, I suspect he's. if he's done much diving down under, he's probably done some, seen some pretty spectacular things, but amazing stuff. That's. Those are just great. Sometimes you need the expert voice to provide a bit of a steady stream of thought through all the chaos, right? Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? Like someone to say, if you're feeling this or if you're experiencing this, you're not alone. You're not off kilter. I want to be, again, careful about the language I use, Mm. especially when you're talking about mental health. You know, when we say like, what's normal, you know, nothing's normal. Who's normal? Normal's boring, let me say. But, like, what is healthy and what is unhealthy? Mm-hmm. And these are the tools we need. Heidi chimes in. She says, I recently deleted Twitter and started therapy. And I never, Heidi says, I never felt like social media was bad for my mental health until recently. And it has been such a weight off my chest. That from Heidi. What a great observation.
1: I mean, when I saw the postings about, uh, cave syndrome I was like oh that must That must be me oh my gosh like I mm. don't, don't want to leave the house I I'm feeling like a hermit and I, I, It must be really unhealthy and then to Hear the doctor talk about it And be like Nina, it's okay
0: Well and it's and and he says and it's like perfectly it. Fine if you want to you know people, yeah. people Use this kind of as an insult and people have Used that as an insult hell I have Used it as an insult when I want to talk about Internet trolls I mean if I'm going to go along I'll Build off what Heidi just said there about social media the people that will type something so horrendous that you kind of come back and say, you know, hey, your your mom's calling from upstairs and your craft dinner's <laughs> ready, you basement dwelling troll. Uh, but at the same time, can can we acknowledge that whether we're talking about if you want to stay home or go out, if you want to wear a mask or not, we need to. I think can I continue to recycle Stephen Covey's premise of seek to understand seek to understand people recognize that different people are at different points in their journey that every approach within reason in my mind is okay if you're not quite ready yet to hit Lollapalooza that's perfectly (laughs) fine and if you are vaccinated and if you are ready to start socializing again I think on the flip side that's okay too at some point People are starting to socialize again. And quite frankly, a lot of people really need it. And we're going to continue to have these conversations. And we promise you that they will be driven by real talk. We also want to remind you that this show is powered by Westworld Computers. We went to Daryl and his team there. They've been family owned for more than 40 years as we were getting ready to see if this plane would fly. We said, Daryl, here's our idea. We're going to do a live streaming show. We need to have lots of horsepower to make it happen. And we got to be able to depend on our gear. And he said, we're going to build a roster We're going to put together the equipment that you need for your specific scenario. It's what they do. It's all part of the customer service that's kept people coming back again and again and again. Whether you visit them in person on their Mayfield Road location or online at westworld.ca, they've got a team of sales and service technicians ready to answer your every question. Plus, they'll ship anywhere in Canada if you order from westworld.ca. We're also grateful to be partnering with the team at Local Waste. Trash Talk's coming up on Friday. We've got a lot to choose from, including a hilarious Twitter thread by a dog. That's right. We have our first canine contributor to Trash Talk coming up on Friday. You've still got time to submit your gripe to talk at ryanjesperson.com. The team at Local Waste is operating in Alberta and Saskatchewan and always looking to grow their team. If you're an entrepreneur that sees an opportunity in your community, reach out to Mikel, Lauren, and Chris today at localwaste.ca. You'll see their contact information right at the top of the page. Also, a big shout out to the team at Kubi Energy. What a wonderful day yesterday as we were so proud partnering with Kubi Energy thanks to you, the hundreds of real talkers who cast your votes by way of our question of the week the winifred stewart association joey's home the recipient of that solar install that's right the winifred stewart association and joey's home are going net zero free clean energy for 30 years thanks to our friends at kubi energy they can help you find your solar solution get in touch with them today They do all the paperwork for you as well and help you find all the government programs you can tap into. Did you know Alberta's just launched an agriculture-specific solar incentive? Jake and his team have all the details. You'll find them under the Sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. We've got in uh, a little bit later in the show coming up a feature uh, where we're going to take you out to Jasper. It's one that we really love. But right now we have an opportunity live to check in with the prime minister's special representative for the Prairies. Minister Jim Carr was first elected as an MP for Winnipeg South Center back in 2015. Uh, He served as Minister of Natural Resources, Minister of International Trade Diversification. But you could probably make the argument that as a a proud Manitoban, uh, maybe this is his most important work. Minister, it's great to have you back on the show. Thanks for making yourself available and welcome back to Real Talk.
4: Thanks, Ryan. I'm glad to be back with you here from a very gloomy Winnipeg. And it's gloomy because the sky is obscured by smoke from the forest fires in Northwestern Ontario. And we want clouds because as you and your friends probably know, we're in the midst of a terrible drought july was the driest in 150 years so we need the rain the fires aren't helping so it's kind of a tough moment over here on the eastern prairie yeah
0: you're well you're you're, you're located in an interesting uh, part I, i'm gonna be honest i've been a bit regionally centric when i when, my own perspective when i think of wildfires and where i think where that smoke's coming from i'm thinking british columbia and california uh yeah. i've not paid much attention to what's been going on In northwestern Ontario, but this truly is a national issue. Obviously, fires are fought uh, as part of a, you know, they're addressed and planned out uh, as part of a, a provincial mandate. What is the federal government's position on managing wildfire?
4: Well, to give the resources necessary to local authorities to fight them. And we've been doing that right across the country. It's a particularly tough combination here because on top of the fires, we have this intense drought. It just hasn't rained all summer. And already we're seeing the first signs of crop failure, uh, particularly a little bit west of here. And it's a serious, serious situation. And Canada, as always, is working with local authorities to provide the help that they need to try to get things under control. Uh, But we all know that this is a trend that's getting worse. Uh, We're going to have to have a very serious conversation with ourselves about the resources that we devote to the impact of these fires and of this moisture. Uh, So that's the report from the Eastern Prairie. I wish it could be a little bit more positive on that front. Uh, But the sky is cloudy, but I'm going to make the argument that the prospect is a little bit brighter than that.
0: Well, and, and I'm curious to hear what you mean by that, because as you've alluded to, I mean, we've spoken to producers Uh, Some on air, some off air that are painting uh, just an unbelievably dire picture of of not just what the canola yield or the barley yield is going to look like this year, what the implications are for their cattle ranch, but bigger picture what they think it means. I've never, I don't think, heard so many farmers talking about the reality of climate change. How, How does this drought or how do conditions like this influence your resolve or the government's resolve on things like a climate change plan?
4: I think it influences the resolve of Canadians who just have to look out the window, check the weather forecast, get a report on moisture levels, assess the uh, fires that are raging in so many parts of the country, and to come to the conclusion that our response as a government, as a society and as a nation has to be more aggressive than it has been. And I think that more and more people are understanding what the direct consequences of public policy might be. Uh, And I think we're in a much different place, Ryan, today than we were a year ago or two years ago in the public consciousness, in understanding what's necessary, and to formulate the public policies that are going to be necessary to confront this challenge.
0: Let me ask you, I mean, you're the the Prime Minister's special representative for the Prairies. If you're going to talk about climate change, if you're going to talk about climate plans, I wouldn't be doing my job as an interviewer if I didn't. Point out the fact that the greatest and loudest cynicism and opposition to things like a carbon tax have come from the prairie provinces, in particular, Premiers Jason Kenney and Scott Moe. Do you see the tide turning on opinion there? I mean, essentially, Premier Kenney, you might argue, won the 2019 provincial election in his description as a referendum on the carbon tax.
4: Has anything changed? Two years have passed. More evidence is being accumulated. Canadians have seen for themselves what the result has been. And we have a pretty robust national conversation about the best way to tackle climate change. And it's not only a Canadian conversation, it's worldwide. And there is a consensus among economists, among scientists, observers, and people who have been observing the changes of climate for a very long time, uh, that we have to be far more aggressive in coming to terms with it. And I think there is an understanding Uh, that that's the new reality. And it's not only an understanding of this government or that. I think Canadians are understanding it more fulsomely than ever before because they're confronted with this unmistakable evidence. And we seek to work together with provincial governments and others. And by the way, the private sector. And it's the private sector in Alberta which has really taken the lead in understanding that greenhouse gas reductions is such a key element for us to begin to write the next chapter of the energy sector in Canada and globally. So uh, I think the understanding today is much different than the understanding in 2019. And I think that would apply to governments and including provincial governments as well.
0: You, you could easily make the argument, I'll save us all the time, and, and I'll assume that it goes without saying that the relationship between Alberta's provincial government and the federal government is a hostile one. Uh, how do you manage that or how does that complicate uh, or how does that set apart your mandate with regards to specifically dealing with the government of Alberta?
4: I don't do hostility very well. I'm always looking for alignments. I'm looking for ways in which we can work together in order to service the citizens who elect us, whether that's the response to the pandemic, uh, where there has been cooperation across the country, uh, in the battle against climate change, where we look for areas where we can make progress together. Uh, And as I look at Alberta and the leadership that's being shown by many people in your province, Uh, I become far more optimistic about getting through it. When we were speculating what the generation change would look like, even three or four years ago, nobody had any idea that the pace of change would be as dramatic as it has been and the acceleration as profound. So I see this as an inescapable reality where politicians have a responsibility to respond and to reach out to other levels of government. So you characterize the relationship as hostile. I characterize it as a natural tension between levels of government. Uh, But I also see that there are ways in which we can find points of alignment. We have to that's our responsibility. Yeah, but and minister, you know, and the people see
0: it. It's not a there are there's a natural tension between levels of government. I mean, if you, if you're John Horgan, uh, you know, he may not want Justin Trudeau telling him what, uh, you know, a BC's child care plan should look like or or maybe Blaine Higgs doesn't want the prime minister telling him how he should structure certain education. funding. There, there's that tension and provinces want autonomy and, and a certain level of sovereignty. Pardon the Alberta phrase there, but there's something different. There's something different about Alberta, right? I mean, there's only one premier that's gone on the record describing the prime minister's political depth as that of a finger bowl. I mean, the guys can't stand each other. How much does that stand
4: in the way of you effectively doing your job? Well, personal relationships matter in politics. And uh, if they're rooted in trust, that's even better. And if they're not, and if the rhetoric gets pointed uh, and discourteous and sometimes even nasty, then what are you going to do? Uh, Are you going to become nasty yourself? Or are you going to try to appeal to the interests of the people who you represent? And that's been our strategy. And I think the pandemic has shown that when you can draw a direct link between the government of Canada and the people of Alberta, as we have done through the many programs uh, that have, I think, been influential in the lives of individuals, businesses, institutions, and their communities, Uh, There's another level at the relationship, and that's the relationship between the government and the people. So uh, politicians are going to become rhetorical. They'll become nasty sometimes when they believe it's in their interest to become hard edged. Doesn't happen to be my style. And I don't think it's what people want. And I think what we learned over the last 18 months is that when the Canadian people see that their governments are cooperating, they'll feel better about it.
0: Let me ask you, uh, one of the, the premier's executive directors uh, of communications, uh, Brock Harrison, claimed the other day that Alberta was the last province approached by the federal government to try to plot out a plan uh, to bring some form of subsidized or affordable childcare. Uh, is
4: that accurate? And if so, why? There are conversations happening right now uh, at very senior levels of the government of Canada and the province's. As you know, we've signed agreements already uh, with several of the provinces. We continue to look at ways in which we can sign agreements with all of them. Uh, The situation is not the same from province to province, uh, but the objective is pretty clear. And I think that it's shared by an awful lot of people in this country, affordable childcare, which is not only good social policy, but it's a very sensible economic policy too. And many provinces see it that way. So we'll continue to have these chats, uh, we don't expect that there's going to be quick agreement with all the provinces. We've said to Canadians, this is what our ambitious goal is. These are the dollars that we're prepared to invest in achieving that goal. We want the provinces to come with it with us, and we're having serious conversations right now to see if we can accomplish that.
0: What's the federal government's perspective on something like affordable child care or, or even an attempt at a national pharmacare plan we're all expecting to see election platforms in a couple of weeks and you and i can talk about that in just a little bit i'm very excited for the scoop you're going to give us on what day the election (laughs) will be called uh but if one or two provinces were to opt out alberta's been quite clear about its position on pharmacare. You might say the same about child care, although I think that that's a little murky right now. Would that stand in the way of the federal government's resolve to ensure that programs were put in place in other provinces or territories? How might that scenario play out if a province said, count us out?
4: Well, that's not where we start. We start with an objective and where you're talking about the goals in the child care plan or what the goals would be in a national pharmacare program. So that's where you start. You say let's see if we can get a consensus on where we want to be next year or in five years or in 10 and then you dial it back and you start negotiating agreements and the situation is varied as the very nature of the country is varied. but what underpins the conversation is a public policy objective that's rooted in what we believe to be in the interests of the citizens so that's where you start And I think that's probably the easiest agreement to come to. And then when you dial it back and start negotiating the details, it could be difficult. But there are all kinds of examples in our history and in our relationship between the national government and provinces where we do end up with consensus and we do end up with agreement. And it's not always easy and it's often controversial. And the disagreements can be honest, uh, but there is no shortage of will and energy in getting to that point. And that's what we seek to accomplish.
0: A friend of mine has has pegged August 8th as the day that he is absolutely convinced uh, an election will be called. How close do you think my pals going to be on nailing down the exact date, minister?
4: You know what? I don't know. Come on. Yeah, I don't you know. Do. Yeah, you No, do. I don't. OK, I don't know. Assuming. That's the way it works. Assuming Everybody that he knows that that's the way it works. Assuming that these that, decisions. Yeah, go ahead.
0: Assuming that there's going to be an election.
4: Let, let, let's let's oh, prog- we can assume there will be an election. The, the, the,
0: let's prognosticate. How well do you think the liberals can fare? On the prairies, you've got a you've got a, a tall assignment. As if I need to lay it out for you, everybody yeah. that's going to listen to this interview knows exactly what we're talking about. What needs to happen? What does a campaign platform need to look like for the liberals to take some seats in Alberta, Saskatchewan, to do better in Manitoba, et cetera?
4: Well, uh, I believe that I'm in a temporary job. Hmm. I'm in a temporary job because the prime minister gave me the responsibility of representing interests of the prairie at the center of the national government. And the reason for that is that we failed to connect with enough voters in Alberta and Saskatchewan to get a single seat. That's a really bad result. And you have to assess why was the result so bad and how do you make it better? Well, you start by having an understanding of what those provinces and the people in those provinces who are the wealth creators and the consumers and the families and the institutions want that they did not hear from us. And then that's only step one. Then you have to begin to deliver. And you have to deliver in ways that are actually measurable and meaningful to families, to businesses, and to communities. And then you have to be judged on the basis of what you've been able to deliver. So I think we're in a much better place today than we were 18 months ago for a variety of reasons. Uh, The pandemic is one where Canadians could see firsthand the role of the national government and how it responded to the crisis and how that response had an impact on things that really matter to them in their lives. And then in the case of Alberta, to understand the importance of particular economic sectors, the future of those sectors, the role of the national government to stimulate private investment and the role of the national government to set the frame within which these investments can actually make a difference to people who live in Alberta and Saskatchewan. So, and then there's the whole other set of issues, leaders, candidates, the moment, uh, and you have to have all of those that come together in order to improve your position. So I guess I would go back to where I started. This is a temporary position for me and I hope to work myself out of a job.
0: Hmm. Well, it's certainly, I mean, it's a unique position to hold. Uh, and, you know, I mean, to be a special representative to the prairies, I mean, we, we oftentimes say and I'll describe to people, especially when I'm talking to anybody in eastern Canada or on the west coast, you know, they say, what's real talk all about? Like, what's what's the premise of it? And I'll often say we're a proud prairie podcast, you know, and and, and uh, it, it sort of feels like if you're from the prairies, you might understand what that implies. But if you're not from the mm-hmm. prairies, it might require a bit of explanation on what Mm -hmm. makes people tick and how people are wired and the ethos here to a certain degree. When you're sitting around the cabinet table, when you're talking, when you're, you know, bending the ear of the prime minister himself, how would you characterize prairie dwelling Canadians? How, How would you characterize the prairie provinces with regards to how they're maybe misunderstood or even maligned? What's the message that you deliver?
4: The first message is that stereotypes are obstacles to progress. Mm. So if I name a province, and all of a sudden you have all these images, I'm going to say half of them are probably wrong, or in any case, it's really incomplete. Let me give an example. Uh, You know that uh, Dr. Michael Houghton won the Nobel Prize for his work at the University of Alberta. That's the kind of stereotype that I don't mind when I hear Alberta. So it's diverse within each of these three prairie provinces. We have a wide variation of opinion, of background, of demographics, of geography. It's not the same here in downtown Winnipeg as it is in Peace River country. But what binds us together, I think, is the historical relationship with the land itself and what the land produces, has produced, and will continue to produce. Because in my work, particularly as trade minister, and I would travel around the world and I would talk about my home region, Uh, prairie canada Uh, all of a sudden lights would go on because they know that we grow what the world needs and whether that growth is in uh, the energy sector in agriculture in value-added agriculture in artificial intelligence in the management of water within a stable democracy people think of us as a region that's blessed in so many ways and it is and then again it's just the pride of your home I and mean, where you were raised. And i never felt more comfortable and more attached to this region in all of its diversity than I do now. And it's my job to try to reflect that at the center of the government because we have not yet convinced enough people in Alberta and Saskatchewan that all of that is worthy of their support and a vote.
0: I want to talk to you about the land and I want to talk to you about the history. Um, It's uh, it's been a national conversation for the past number of months. Uh, I think we can all agree it should have been part of the national conversation for many years prior to that. But the discovery first outside the former Kamloops Indian Residential School. And, and, the, and then I think I'm, I'm not going to put them on a scale of which discoveries have been most heartbreaking or most shocking, because I don't think that's a productive exercise. But 751 unmarked graves uh, outside of former residential school in the Cowess's First Nation. We had an opportunity to speak to Chief DeLorme, a, a, a very powerful conversation. Um, and he talked about his perception of the prime minister's response and and it was actually uh, considering what let me provide a bit of background here minister we had warren Kinsella on the show a while ago he's got no love for the prime minister you know that obviously uh speaks out quite loudly and in very unflattering fashion about the prime minister and he was very critical about a photo of the prime minister kneeling by an unmarked grave holding a teddy bear the chief from Cowess's First Nation, Chief DeLorme, as a matter of fact, clapped back on that pretty quickly and said that the prime minister was there to listen. And he essentially told us that when it came to them achieving sovereignty with regards to their own child and family services, that they had essentially, for all intents and purposes, dictated to the federal government what they wanted the plan to look like. And he said the federal government listened it was quite a moment on the show, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. We've had different and varying opinions from uh, indigenous community leaders uh, over the past number of weeks and months who have assessed the federal government's job on uh, things like water advisories on the reconciliation file as a whole and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action, et cetera. I'm curious to know your thoughts on how this national conversation about our history of residential schools has impacted your perception of not just how you do your job, but what the federal government needs to do and what conversation is gonna look like through the course of a federal campaign.
4: This is the saddest and sorriest chapter of Canadian history. And it has not been properly documented or debated, understood, or absorbed by many Canadians and governments across the country. There has been such a significant shift in consciousness over the last number of weeks and months, and I would say even years, uh, that we're slowly making progress. And it's also fair to say that when you are having to undo and repair damage that has been inflicted upon an entire part of our nation for all of these decades that the uh, resolve to begin to repair, working with indigenous communities and leaderships on the road to repair uh, is going not necessarily to be straight and it's not going to be as smooth as we would hope it might be, but what has changed is an understanding among governments and among citizens that there is an imperative now not only to appreciate and utter the understanding of what has happened but to take definitive action and there is a lot that has been taken and i'm not going to use up a lot of time to go through line by line the investments that we have made over the last number of years since 2015 on the road to the reconciliation Uh, nor am I going to name Indigenous leaders who have said publicly that they agree with that. It's not a question of a scorecard, it's a question of an understanding of a commitment and a resolve working and co-developing with Indigenous leaders and with Indigenous peoples the way out of this horrible past into a future that will be rooted in possibility and the aspirations of Indigenous children wherever they may live in the country. And a real commitment not only by government by from canadians who are so able to influence the pace of reform that the time has come and it's here now and i think that there is lots of evidence to make the case that there is significant changes in understanding uh, but there is so much more to do but there's also resolve to get it done and as a manitoban Uh, I was raised with an understanding of uh, the special role that Indigenous people played in the birth of my own province. You may know that uh, just the other day, we celebrated the anniversary of Treaty 1. Mm. Uh, That was uh, the first treaty that was signed. And that only a few weeks ago, uh, we commemorated an agreement with the Manitoba Métis Federation. Uh, And as a Manitoban born and raised with an understanding of the history of the Red River and the history of the Métis people, I think that even that kind of understanding, appreciation and recognition is a sign that at least we're in a better place today than we were months ago. Hmm. Yeah,
0: we've received so many, I mean, people just, I'm so grateful that people essentially pour out their hearts. And I think for a lot of people they they type emails to us as as almost like an exercise in 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 working out their own thoughts. And we've received some really powerful messages from people that have been trying to reconcile the past with the present and and, and understand what the future looks like. And I think one of the the messages that has reached us loud and clear is that many Canadians that have perceived this, And by this, I'm talking about the bigger conversation and the legacy, uh, the horrific legacy of residential schools has not so much been part of our past, but it is the reason for so many of the present challenges that many Indigenous people face in Canada. Uh, and, and we could certainly start listing off, I, th- I think, a number of, of of social priorities for different levels of government that directly stem from the trauma, the intergenerational trauma from residential schools. and And, and I would imagine... That, you know, as, as high as level as the federal government, it gets to the point where it's uh, I don't know if it's reiterating itself to Canadians or it's the government's role to reiterate that this is not so much part of the past as it is part of our reality. I know I know that there's a faction of people. I see it online. I see people leaving comments that it's, you know, that's, you know, you know, the typical trope. Right. I didn't do it. I'm not apologizing. I'm not responsible for it. I didn't take anybody's kids away. This was in the past. It's time to move on. And if anything, I've seen on mass from Canadians that this almost epiphany, uh, this awakening, this resolve that this is our present and it needs to be part of our future in the context of how we're going to meaningfully respond to it.
4: I agree with all of that. Uh, What comes first is an understanding of the past, a recognition of what led to decisions that have been taken by governments and by others across Canadian society that have left us uh, with the challenges that we face now. But I would look to the Indigenous leadership itself uh, for ways in which we come to terms with these realities and reach out to each other uh, to work at ways in which we can move beyond it. And the way to do that is to understand the basic necessities that we all need uh, to live a life where we can aspire that our children can reach their goals. And that has to do with the basic understanding of infrastructure, of education, of economic opportunity, of sharing in the resources of the nation. And all of that is happening, but it's happening too slowly. And there are many examples where the uh, the vision, the energy, the sense of what the road looks like is developed in the communities themselves. And you have to have a government that understands that that is where the leadership has to come from. And then we offer all of the partnership that are necessary. We could get into a conversation about self-government, where we are down that road, where we have to be, where we want to be, and to point uh, examples where that is working. Uh, The pace of change is not the same among the 650-odd First Nations across the country, but the objectives are the same, and that is to make sure that the aspirations for these children and for these communities can be met in a nation who understands the horror stories of the history that has come before, to learn from it, to reach out, to reconcile every day through conversation and through action. So that's where we are, and I'm... Optimistic because I think that Canadians have come a long way, I think governments have come a long way with so much more distance yet to travel. Uh, But I like to see the progress that we're making, the opportunities that that progress unveils and to be part of it. And I believe that the government of Canada will be.
0: Minister, I know we've just got a couple of minutes left with you. I've got a couple of questions on different fronts. Uh, About a week ago, the the prime minister uh, announced uh, five new Senate appointments, three in Quebec, two on the prairies one in Saskatchewan, Jim Arnett, one in Alberta, BAMPS mayor, Karen Sorensen. It prompted a statement from Alberta's premier who described it as the prime minister showing contempt for democracy in Alberta. Of course, you know that Alberta will conduct its Senate elections uh, this October, uh, describing it as appointing a handpicked representative to the Senate in advance of Alberta's Senate elections. Suggesting the prime minister knew full well that Alberta would be holding elections because, says the premier, I personally informed the PM of these upcoming elections. He says, sadly, the prime minister's decision to snub his nose at Alberta's democratic tradition is part of a pattern of flippantly disregarding Alberta's demands for a fair deal in Canadian Federation and the desire of Albertans for democratic accountability. I recognize you're not the prime minister, but as his special representative to the prairies, what's your response?
4: that the Senate is uh, way better and more reflective of the diversity of Canada now uh, than it was before the reforms of a number of years ago. Uh, And that there are uh, people within all of our communities who make recommendations to the prime minister. If you look at the makeup and the nature of the Canadian Senate today uh, versus five years ago or 10 years ago, you'll see that it's a far better reflection of who we are as Canadians than it was. These are excellent appointments. Now these are men and women who have served their communities. Many of them who have experience uh, in legislatures or in areas of public policy that are helpful and useful that reflect uh, the very diversity of the country itself. So uh, I'm comfortable with the look of the Senate today uh, as it had looked historically. Uh, I think we're at a much better place now than we were then.
0: Uh, Finally, let me ask you this. Uh, Your colleagues, uh, Minister of Justice Lametti, Minister of Public Safety Blair, issued a joint statement in response to Alberta's justice minister's proposal, uh, a two-pronged proposal to address uh, violent and hate-fueled crimes, uh, crimes targeting minority populations, women, uh, and other Canadians. Uh, The two suggestions... Uh, were mandatory minimums and and a bigger conversation about expanding those and essentially uh, allowing pepper spray, allowing private citizens to carry pepper spray. Got Albertans talking. It probably distracted a lot of Albertans from other real issues. But the federal government did respond and essentially said, no. Uh, i'm going to save us the time of reading the statement again but the statement does read to end hate and keep communities safe from violence everyone needs to take meaningful action we the federal government are focused on not only addressing the symptoms of violence but also its root causes now these don't occur only in urban centers obviously but to people that are going to hear this interview in in Calgary and Red Deer and Edmonton and Regina and Saskatoon and and Winnipeg and Brandon and other communities. Uh, What's the federal government's commitment look like? What's the federal government's plan to take meaningful action on hate crimes and violence against women, ethnic minorities and religious groups?
4: An anti-racism, anti-hate strategy uh, from top to bottom uh, throughout uh, the national government and throughout Canadian society. You know that we sponsored two all-day conversations just a couple of weeks ago, one on antisemitism and one on Islamophobia. And there is no doubt that minority communities are feeling vulnerable and they're feeling vulnerable for very good reasons. Uh, There have been too many examples, including in Alberta, of people who have been attacked only because of what clothing they wear or where they pray. And we know that uh, it's a tender and vulnerable moment and communities are becoming more and more apprehensive about the capacity of others to attack them on the grounds of uh, these kinds of rooted hatreds uh, that come from, in some cases, age old prejudices, and in other cases from contemporary reaction to people who are different than the way they are. And the way you attack it is by talking about it, by making sure that our children at a very early age understand uh, the roots of this hatred and this violence, and that whenever we see it, we combat it with all the tools at our disposal.
0: Mr. Jim Carr is uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's special representative for the Prairies and elected MP out of Winnipeg South Centre. Thanks for making time for us today. We always appreciate your uh, availability and your candor.
4: It's my pleasure. It's good to see you again. Yeah. Uh,
0: for those that are tuning in live, whether you're on the Mixler audio app or whether you're watching us live on YouTube, we always appreciate hearing from you. Penny says, you know, I would like to learn that every government meeting starts with asking, what have we done today to address reconciliation? Hmm. Marie says when it comes to election issues as a soon to be retired nurse, Marie, thank you. She says, I have concerns about my health care moving forward. Daniel says, our young and educated are our future and our future is presently being decimated. Hope. I love this moniker. It's one of my favorite handles on our live chat. Hope Springs. (laughs) Hope Springs says it is my responsibility to be a better person and acknowledge what my ancestors and, and and what other settlers have have done to damage the indigenous people in this country if you're if if you're like me you you sit and you think about an interview and you kind of process it I mean sometimes later in a day I'll you know or maybe a day later a week later I'll be like oh man I would still be thinking about something if that's you uh, even if it's I mean we get emails I'm going to read some a little later on in this show uh, right after we go to the mountains in just a minute but we'll get emails from people that are hearing interviews. I mean, if you subscribe to our podcast, sometimes a lot of people have been road tripping over the past number of weeks or I mean, especially this is road trip prime time, isn't it? People are tuning in to episodes that they've missed just because you're hearing an interview from a month ago or from three months ago. Don't say, oh, the interest has expired. We'd still love to hear from you. Let us you know, we want to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, I've got one in particular coming up from an interview probably two months ago. Great take. We're always curious for how you are feeling about what you're hearing or seeing here on the show. This feels like a good time to mention our partners at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park through the month of August. I've talked to you about their community commitment and, and this is straight from the ownership team. You know, they write as the devastation of residential schools continues to unfold. We felt a need to educate ourselves By reaching out to our friends within the indigenous community, aligning ourselves with a group that would benefit potentially from some fundraising. And so for the month of August, the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens and Baseline Road will be donating a dollar from every cone they sell to the Wakutuin Society. Uh, This is a society that hosts annual retreats for indigenous women who are cancer survivors and survivors of residential schools. The retreats are culturally safe for these women, endeavoring to support them as they heal their physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being while empowering them to wellness and strength as leaders when they return to their home communities. For the entire month of August, a dollar from every cone will go to benefit the Wakutuin Society. We're proud of our friends at Dairy Queen for doing this and we encourage you to take your business there. We also want to remind you that Edmonton is playing host from August 20th through 22nd. It's coming up in just about two weeks time to the World Triathlon Championship Finals. You can learn more at edmonton.triathlon.org. Now, a lot of the athletes that have been competing in the Tokyo Olympic Games will be headed to Alberta to compete here these are like the fittest athletes in the world. Triathlon athletes, they just blow my mind. The weekend is stacked with elite races on Saturday, August 21st. That's the big day. Community events on the Friday and the Sunday for all ages, for all skill levels. Registrations now open with limited spots available. Again, check out edmonton.triathlon.org very cool to see them launching the inaugural edmonton urban cycling fondo a community race on a closed course that'll go sunday august 22nd all the details are online we also wanted to remind you that our friends at athabasca university boy has this last year and a half been a wake up for people when it comes to post-secondary education realizing that there are different methods of delivery now yeah there are the continuing education programs at some of the other colleges and universities that were and hey good for them slapped together kind of last minute everybody doing their best to accommodate the team at Athabasca U this is what they do as Canada's online university They were ready for this. And as people start to ease back into what life might have looked like a couple of years ago, Athabasca U will still be here, allowing you an opportunity to do your schooling from absolutely anywhere. Maybe the kids are playing outside or maybe they're at swimming lessons. Maybe you're at a layover on the road for business Online, on-demand learning, you'll find it at AthabascaU.ca. It fits your schedule and your life at Athabasca University. We look forward to this each and every week. Thanks to our friends at Tourism Jasper. Every Wednesday, an opportunity for us to head out to the mountains. It's a segment, a feature that we call My Jasper Memories. Presented by Tourism Jasper. And today... Let's go for a hike, hey? Why not head out to the mountains? I mean, Jasper is home to some of the most remarkable, breathtaking hiking trails and hidden gems on planet Earth, right? Whether it's Malene Lake that resonates with you or the Skyline Trail, maybe Tonquin Valley, Edith Cavell Meadows, the Valley of Five Lakes. There's a network of less trafficked beauties. You know, there's gonna be some people listening to this being like, will you please stop mentioning all my favorite spots? just waiting to be discovered at jasper national park it's uh, of course many interested travelers visiting every year but there's 11,000 square kilometers there so pockets of wonder outside the limelight ready for you to explore i mean we're talking beaver lake and summit lake i want to name a few and and you can research these yourself if you just go to jasper.travel slash real talk you'll find all the links cavell lake pyramid bench Lower Wapta Falls. I mean, some of these are, you know, 4, 5K. These are perfect loops or journeys for a family, for an afternoon, for a beautiful early morning. Jasper House Viewpoint, Old Fort Point, about 4K or so. And then, of course, Mona and Lorraine Lakes, which are some of the most favorite. I mean, these lookouts are breathtaking these are ones that take your breath away my personal recommendation here's one this one's not a secret i know this it it stands at the foot of mount robson i mean it's just an absolutely remarkable journey but i think berg lake to me check this out i love this photo of my buddy bins look at that boots are off he's cooling his feet sam sarah i know you guys both love to hike have you guys ever been up to berg lake the, to me, like if if you're lucky enough, you'll see a big chunk of ice fall in and splash. Do you have a favorite hiking destination, Jasper? I'm putting you on the spot right now.
1: I mean, Old Fort Point is something that uh, has allowed my whole family to go up. So my senior ish parents yeah. <laughs> and uh, my nieces and nephews who are you know were four and five at the time. So we were all and the dogs were all able to.
0: Scramble up there altogether. That's part of it, right? The family journey of it, which is what yeah. so many people endeavor to discover. How about you, Sam? Do you have a favorite? Am I am I asking is it like asking someone to pick their favorite child? It's a little bit like asking someone to pick their favorite child. Um, a particular experience I
1: really, really loved is I was working a couple summers ago on a film about the Athabasca Glacier and we needed a Ooh. we needed a, we needed an angle looking down at the whole thing. So I threw six cameras on my back because we were shooting three sixty video and in the snow hiked up the Wilcox
0: Trail to- Ooh. you can look over the Athabasca Glacier. What a really? view. Oh, it was amazing. Did you wish you had seven or eight cameras up there, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of my favorite parts, and this has just been a natural development of this feature, is that Real Talkers have started submitting their Jasper memories. So if you're going to do this, use the hashtag MyJasper and RealTalkRJ. And every week, we're going to showcase at least one Real Talkers jasper memory this one from tim this is incredible tim's probably all week tim's probably known that he's going to get featured because how wouldn't he? he said he said can i suggest a topic for my jasper memories can i be so bold says tim as to call jasper a romantic place He says, for me, Jasper will forever be the place where she said yes. It was eight. I just got chills. He said it was eight years ago yesterday that my beautiful lady and I stood at the base of Whistler's Mountain. Look at this unbelievable photo of these two lovebirds. He says, we're waiting for the sky tram. I looked up at a ceiling of clouds. I thought to myself, I should have asked her yesterday on the docks at Moline Lake. Arriving at the top, we found rain waiting for us. We retreated to the cafe for a warming bevy. I waited for my window and I jumped when I saw those clouds clear. I quickly set up my tripod so we could get a photo together. I framed her up. I pretended to have forgotten about one last birthday gift in my camera bag. He said, yeah, it was her birthday. I made her close her eyes. And when she opened them, I was on one knee and the rest is a blur to me, but she said yes. So Jespo, I submit to you that my Jasper memories will forever be dominated by romance for your consideration on Real Talk. There you go. We'd love to see your Jasper memories. You can submit them again using the hashtag #myjasper and #realtalkrj and you can learn more about our partnership plus check out past features and a wealth of information including their blog on some of the best hidden hiking gems at jasper.travel/realtalk. I don't know how we've already been doing the show for 2 hours and 14 minutes. And I feel like we've only scratched the surface. Mm -hmm. Like we haven't even talked about the fact on a tough note that today marks one year since that massive blast at the port in Beirut, Lebanon. Yeah. Right. 200 people died that day. You you see some of the surveillance footage, some some cameras that happened to be rolling that caught that. Explosion—the magnitude of which you rarely see—seven thousand people injured. I
1: think that. I mean, the death toll was was very high, but just the the myriad, like the the, the amount of injury and shrapnel. The stories that I yeah. heard about shrapnel and just. It was devastating.
0: I encourage people to, to read up on that today. Spend some time reading up on it. I was sort of, you know, preparing myself to, you know, host the show this morning. I was reading pieces on how many survivors there are talking about how there's really been no justice for a lot of families. Justice has been denied or at least has been uh, delayed. Uh, there it feels tacky to talk about the economic impact of something like that as well when you're you're talking about a loss of human life 200 people killed 7,000 people injured but the economic impact of that on on one of the world's busiest ports uh has been massive as well we haven't even checked in on stage two of my unofficial unscientific twitter poll just out of interest, we've been asking real talkers and, and for, for the most part, we've been asking Canadian conservatives on Twitter, you know, if not Aaron O'Toole, who would you like most to lead your party into the next federal election? Yesterday, we showed you that 38 percent of those that responded to the survey had chosen Pierre Polyev. Stephen Harper was in second place. Uh, Aaron O'Toole was in third and Jason Kenney was in fourth there were recurring names that people were, were, were submitting uh, as part of comments to that survey. And we added, I think, probably the four most recurring or the four m- most common to a poll, a follow up poll. And we've, we've got about, you know, closing in on twelve hundred and fifty votes here. We've got about an hour left in the poll. Ronna Ambrose is the choice of 61 percent of respondents. I mean, she's absolutely dominating this poll. She's walking away with it. I don't know if she has any appetite for it.
1: Michael Chong. (laughs) Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I mean, I'll tell you though. You talk to a lot of people that'll say Ronna Ambrose is the exact type of candidate, is the exact type of leader that would bring me back to the Conservative Mm -hmm. Party, or that would convince me to vote Conservative. That could swing my vote, and that's the mandate of whoever the Conservative Party leader is. How do you go from opposition to government? Mm -hmm. Right. Sixty-one percent saying Ronna Ambrose. Eighteen and a half percent Michael Chong. You might describe as more of a progressive Conservative candidate Dr. Leslin Lewis who finished Third you'll remember behind Aaron O'Toole and Peter McKay in the most recent leadership Race with about 12% of our vote and Lisa Rate I'm a little surprised here I thought Lisa rate Would have more than 8.7% of the vote I thought She'd have more than you know 9% of the vote um, And then people Of course now are saying where's Peter McKay Where's Michelle Rempel Garner I'm going okay Where's
1: Belinda Stronick
0: Belinda Stronick <laughs> I don't know about that one <laughs> Where is Belinda Stronic? <laughs> she's probably she's running she's doing the, just running fine. She's running the Empire, right? Is yeah. that probably I haven't heard that name in a long time. I mentioned that we've received a ton of emails, and, and boy, do we ever respect and appreciate the amount of time that it takes you to, to put your thoughts down. And a lot of these are emails to us, and some of these are emails to levels of government where you've CC'd us, which we appreciate. How about this one? You saw this one, COVID is bad for kids? it caught my attention when it landed in our inbox and then i saw who jessica t will say jessica t has attached has cc'd I mean, this feels like a school assignment virtually every mla in the province as well as the federal health minister the prime minister and real talk and jessica t says i am entering grade four this fall my name is jessica Why does Alberta not want to keep kids safe? I've already spent two grades afraid of COVID. My mom says that some people won't wear masks and might come to school if they're sick. I would like to know. What if my friend has COVID and gets me sick and then I have to go to the hospital? I am afraid of the hospital. I'm only nine. Please keep me safe and make my school safe. Jessica T., It's from a grade three heading into grade four student, a nine-year-old real talker. What about this one from Cheryl? Cheryl reached out to us and said, let's hear from our kids. She sent this to us yesterday, said uh, my 15-year-old daughter and her friend rode the bus today. She wrote this to us yesterday, rode the bus to the Alberta legislature and the timing worked out great because they were able to catch a photo with MLA Janice Irwin says Cheryl who scores high points for being cool even with kids when my daughter Rose returned her mood seemed to be different she felt elevated she felt as a matter of fact struck me as better than she's been in a long time she told me I felt so alone and so isolated Uh, my school friends of course aren't vaccinated and I won't be able to spend time with many of them. I stayed home all year so our family would be safe. I wear a mask everywhere, even when others don't. It's been really hard. But today at the rally with so many people wearing masks and fighting for our safety, even kids my age, 15, protesting and speaking up today, I felt like I was not alone. Cheryl says, as a parent who's watched a happy child become anxious and morose and antisocial, During a critical developmental time in her life, what a gift to see her smile again, a real smile. Cheryl says, really, the abandonment of restrictions by the province has been an abandonment of our kids and they feel forgotten. And Cheryl says, Ryan, I would love to see you and Sarah put together a youth panel to talk about how they're feeling. I love the idea, what they're grappling with, how little control they have over what happens to them. Cheryl says, now I hang my head in shame, but I've been quite busy at work, so I've missed a few of your shows in the past few weeks. And She says, if I've missed an interview with young people, please forgive me. She says, I'm trying to get files off my desk in time for our vacation, our first family vacation in almost two years. Cheryl, feel no shame. Thanks for engaging with the show. And the good news is, is if you've missed past episodes, you can always find them. They'll be there as part of our vaults. If you subscribe to our podcast, you can find them on YouTube as well morgan wrote in to say in light she writes this to uh, calgary's mayor and head nenshi and she cc's us along with the federal health minister and alberta's education minister among others in light of the catastrophic abrogation of responsibility by the provincial government by ending testing tracing and isolation just weeks before schools start and unvaccinated u-12s kids under 12 heading back to school risking serious consequences what will the city of calgary do to protect kids from this airborne virus my youngest missed 10 weeks of school due to cases in her class cases in the school as well what will it be like with a far more infectious delta variant and no masks required no testing no tracking no isolation i'm sick thinking about what kind of long-term disability the plan could result in, and I'm desperate to keep my kids from becoming a statistic. Mayor, how will you keep kids safe? Health is a provincial issue, but masks are municipal. And literally, the very minimum that we as a people should do to keep unvaccinated kids safe. She says, I liked Councillor Gondek's suggestion, Jody Gondek, who's running for mayor down in Calgary, that wastewater data is presented daily along with how many cases the wastewater suggests please let me know asks morgan what the city will do to keep all kids and vulnerable populations in our city safe you remember remember that it's it's fecal data that they read in wastewater that provides a fascinating indicator in covid cases and i don't think that morgan is alone i know for a fact morgan's not alone in wanting some indicator, some understanding of what the reality of COVID looks like in the province. Now, as a show and as an audience and as a community, I think it's important that we better understand this and we will endeavor to do so in continued conversations, including with physicians tomorrow, about why some public health experts are arguing that case count matters less among a relatively vaccinated population and why hospitalizations and ICU numbers matter more. And we will endeavor to provide you what we're going to do is do our best to cut through the bs and the noise and get you the information that matters most so that you can have clarity and complete understanding in what the reality looks like keep the emails coming to us i wanted to read a couple of more that have nothing to do with covid this from Dwayne, who reached out said i immensely enjoy your program he says when you talk to those farmers about drought back on July 28th that's what prompted my response i'm originally from a very large farm in eastern alberta and i think that many people take what farmers do for granted you know farmers work really hard to feed people without farmers we're screwed <laughs> if there's no moisture due to lack of rainfall crops don't grow and we all suffer drought also affects our forests of course forests that have been affected by drought risk suffering greater wildfire damage the harm there in turn also affects us When crops and plants can't grow because of drought, well, the implications are obvious. When our forests are destroyed, the consequences are horrific. The need for clean, fresh water cannot be avoided. It is vital to sustain life on this planet. I believe, says Dwayne, that water should be the biggest concern for mankind, not oil. He says, please feel free to read my email on Real Talk. Dwayne, I sure will. Thanks. If you missed that conversation, Uh, I thought in particular, uh, that conversation really nailed it down. You can talk to CEOs and executive directors and elected officials all you like. And and, and our two guests, our two producers that day certainly did have high profile positions, right? Including the president of the Saskatchewan Cattlemen's Association. But they're also farmers. They're the ones that are like seeing the dust kicked up on the boots. They're the ones that are seeing the crops stifled and damaged and destroyed. And they're the ones that are ultimately going to be able to provide us with a good understanding of what it means.
1: They're also no BS. They were they were like straight shooters, straight shooters, just telling it like it is, which I so appreciated. Yeah, it was so refreshing to hear them talk about it.
0: Aaron wrote in with regards to our conversations around. You remember when we talked to Emily, Joy, Allison, and the Church Two movement? What a powerful conversation that was. Uh, you can, of course, find a lot of our past interviews. You can scroll through, if you'd like, in our archives. But you can also use hashtags to do it. Um, if you search the hashtag Church2 and Real Talk RJ, it'll take you right to that interview, right to the highlights. And then Sarah does a great job of sending out the link so you can go directly to the interview. I should also take this moment to mention that in our podcast description and our YouTube description, if you scroll down, you'll find exact time codes. So if you'd like to jump ahead to an interview in any show... If you'd like to hear less of me and more of the guests, you can just click on that time code. Emily was with us on July 15th, and that's the exact day. As a matter of fact, Aaron sent us an email about 20 minutes after the interview wrapped. She said, I get, Ryan, that you back in the day as part of your upbringing were part of an evangelical church, and that's something that I don't understand, But you also, in the meantime, have to acknowledge that all major institutions have not volunteered the tragic reality of the sexual assault of their members. It could be within policing or prisons or post-secondary or other houses of education or gymnastics or high schools or public transit. Institutions protect members that should not be protected. She goes on to say that among the worst offenders are those within the education system. She says churches can be a great segue into understanding how all organizations work. She says even within the province of Alberta and the politics here, Aaron says, I personally am a supporter of Rachel Notley. But complaints within that NDP of sexual abuse were dismissed as we worked it out. She says, all of this has made me very unhappy. Those were conversations, of course, that were occurring midway through Rachel Notley's term as premier, in particular with two of her MLAs. I appreciate that from Aaron. And Aaron's absolutely right. You saw what uh, Michael Che was in shit for the other day, the, the, the co-head writer of Saturday Night Live. Right? talking about Simone Biles poking fun at Simone Biles and made a Larry Nassar joke. Larry Nassar, of he course... didn't. Yeah, I didn't he, see uh, that. Oh, well, I'm sorry to ruin your day when you Google it. But, I mean... It, it, I'm it just consumed went to design... by
1: the Andrew Cuomo, uh, Cuomo stuff. Uh, in... The
0: governor of New York, yeah. uh, people calling for his resignation. What is it now, 13? I think people are saying there have been 13 allegations made of, of, well, of now, sexual there's a, assault. There's
1: or... an actual report that says that... That found them credible yeah
0: so so yeah including uh, a female member of his security detail uh, which that one in particular was really troubling that's a story we'll also keep an eye on you know what i like about just even the fact that you're you just touched on that and mentioned that is i like when our audience knows the stories that are on our radar the stuff that we're paying attention to just because you maybe don't hear something covered uh in fulsome fashion on one show does not mean that it's not part of a working list of ours And you play a big role, our audience members, in determining what else we cover and what we talk about. Please accept that. As part of our editorial process, the role that Real Talkers play by suggesting content, by letting us know something that you've heard or something that's really resonated with you, you can contact us anytime. You can hit us up on Twitter, our official account at Real Talk RJ, And of course, you can send us an email via our website, RyanJesperson.com. Before we sign off, let me remind you that if you're in the market of something to haul that trailer, your family's heading out, you're finally getting out camping. Maybe you have a week or two off work and, and you're looking. At that good old faithful, that 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 Dodge, that that Power Wagon, that's pulled that trailer for years and years and years and years, but it just deserves that break. It deserves to be maybe put out to pasture. Maybe it's time for a new heavy hauler. No dealerships in the province have a better selection of Ram. The three-time three Pete. The three-peat motor trend truck of the year Three years in a row Ram oh, Motor Oh, three tr- three-peat You know what I said that was sort of a, a little bit Inaccurate <laughs> Is I said the three-time three-peat Which would imply a nine-peat They have not achieved yet, yet The nine-peat yet. But I wouldn't rule it out If they keep building them like they're building them now You could see nine straight Motor trend trucks of the year But three in a row is pretty good And at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge, they acknowledge, I mean, you call around, you visit dealerships, you're going to find out real quick that selection is not as good as it usually is. That's just a reality of the pandemic and the Suez Canal thing and the Texas storms and the microchips and everything else. These dealerships have always had better inventory than the rest, plus they share their inventory. You will not find a bigger selection of Ram trucks than you will at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. And finally, a big shout out to the team at Eden Landscaping at landscapeedmonton.ca. You can see what they've been doing so well for 20 years. The customer testimonials are big, but let me tell you, based on personal experience, and you can attest to this too, Sarah, your experience welcoming Sherry, the cherry tree to your home. This is a company that gives a rip. This is a company that does not stop until you are satisfied from the design all the way through to the implementation of your dream. <laughs> there she is back in the day. Doesn't that feel like years ago? Sherry the cherry tree, her limited brief time in studio.
1: She's alive and well, folks. I should really take an updated photo to share. I was, share. Really,
0: I, was I, w- I was sorry to see her go, but we knew what was gonna happen if she stayed in here forever. The short answer is she was gonna die. And, 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 and now she's living freely. Thanks to the fabulous, fabulous team at Eden Landscaping. Tomorrow, we're going to be talking uh, to Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos. We've been looking forward to this for a long time. She's probably, I think, the most outspoken voice in Canada when it comes to protecting seniors, when it comes to policy and long-term care. She's going to get us up to speed on changes that have been made or not. Plus, we'll check in with a couple of physicians who probably won't see eye-to-eye on everything when it comes to Alberta Relaxing Measures. All that and more tomorrow morning. In the meantime, make it a great day. The